You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 428. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. Your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG Headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 4th of June, 2020. Today's episode, a private pilot lands at a closed RAF base in Wales so he can go to the beach. A Bulgarian air charter nearly stalls at low altitude during a go-around. More news, your feedback, and in today's plane tales, the Ian Palmer interviews part four. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 428 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning, an Emmy award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Winds. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a long, long time ago, a U.S. Air Force pilot, now a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, GA, for the last, oh, 31 and a half years or so. And I am joined today by my awesome co-hosts. We'll start with from her lakeside home in the Carolinas. She's a doctor, a skydiver, a marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. It is so good to see everyone this afternoon. I even felt like Radio Roger was like more enthusiastic than, than usual. I mean, he always is, but... No, no, just set the tone. It's going to be yeah. a great show. Had some some good energy there, didn't he? Yeah. All right. And also joining us from his mobile studio in Tampa, Florida. He's a world traveler, airplane mechanic, Breitling Cognoscenti, fitness hound, and international air freight captain. It's Miami Rick. Hey, everybody. Happy to be back. Happy you're here. Looking forward to another great show. Ooh, nice. All right. And... We have <laughs> from his studio in the English countryside, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London. It's Captain Nick. Hi, everybody. It's great to be back on the show. And still uh, unshorn. Look at this. Eh? I'm starting to look like that wizard in uh, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings. Ah, where's your... Magic wand. <laughs> I think you're thinking of Harry Potter. Okay, whatever. <laughs> Behind the book. I am. I'm thinking of the wrong. Behind the book. <laughs> uh, forget it. Uh, sorry. I'm from the northwest Atlanta suburbs. Barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pleasure boat skipper, underwater photographer, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier. It's Captain Dana. Hey, guys. And, uh, from Hogwarts. <laughs> from where? I don't know. I don't know. 
what you're saying. Yeah, it sounds like it's going to be an, an enjoyable afternoon with you folks and talking about the fun stuff we like to talk about. Yeah, I wouldn't get your hopes too, <laughs> hopes high, right? too high. I'm trying to be positive. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. All right, well, let's just dive right into this week's news. Stand by for news. Okay, the first one. You know, we're all kind of tired of the sheltering in place nonsense. And uh, apparently somebody in the UK also just got, kind of got fed up with it. Um, let's see. This is uh, from UK Aviation News. A privately owned aircraft landed at a closed RAF base without permission on bank holiday Monday, according to the MOD's Air Safety Information Management System, or I like to call it ASIMS, A-S-I-M-S. The report filed says that... As what? (laughs) ASIM, ASIMS. Okay. ASIMS? Let's just say ACE. Let's just call it the Air Safety Information Management System. (laughs) ASIMS. Okay. That's enough plugs for them. Uh, The report filed says that a Pilatus PC-12 November 412 Mike Douglas took off from Fair Oaks Airfield in Surrey and flew to RAF Valley on Anglesey. As it was a bank holiday, RAF Valley was closed, and work was being carried out on runway 19. According to the report, the pilot attempted to call the tower frequency several times, but despite receiving no response, landed on runway 19. RAF Valley's fire crew saw the aircraft, and assuming it was in distress, attended the scene as an emergency. It was quickly determined, though, that the aircraft was not an emergency, and the military provost Guard Service, the MPGS, attended the scene to find out what happened. I guess, uh, Nick, would these be people with like machine guns? <laughs> you know, coming to check things out? It's it's a training base and these are um sort of government policemen. Oh, okay. So no, I doubt they'd be it, it um, would be a different reception at a an American um, military base then, I think. Oh just, yeah, just yeah. Exactly right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, The pilot told them that he had flown from London to, quote, go to the beach. When the pilot was informed about the restrictions in place in Wales due to coronavirus, he told them that, oh, it was okay. I had it two months ago. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to worry about me. It's very Uh, convincing. Honesty. (laughs) The pilot went on to to inform the MPGS officers that he had found the airfield on Google Earth. That's a great way to do your flight planning. Oh, yeah. Great planning. (laughs) And and, wait a minute. He also looked it up on Wikipedia. Uh, He read that it handled civilian traffic as well. RAF Valley is also home to Anglesey Airport, which sees daily flights from Cardiff Airport only, but has a strict prior permission required system, a PPR system, which obviously he didn't use. We have now on the screen a photo of uh, the young Captain Nick and a... Uh, uh, that is the very beach. That is he the wanted beach. to visit. In, in fact, soon I think we're going to see a PC-12 going right there. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and why he would want to go visit that beach because it was <laughs> full of pebbles. There's hardly any sand on it. But that uh, that bank of uh, sand at the back there is literally the edge of the airfield. In fact, right in the top left corner, you can see a tiny uh, little sign which says Ministry of Defence. Uh, property behind the alive numbers. Mm. I don't know if everyone mm. gets to see that. Is it just us? Uh, at the, uh, I don't know if everybody sees that on their screens. Um, I think everyone sees it. Mm. Yeah. So, oh, okay. The little number of people that are yeah. watching and so th that that sign okay. used to say something like Ministry of Defense property keep out or whatever. Uh, <laughs> very cool. Um. I was reading pilot's notes. That that's the uh, pilot's notes for the uh, fallen gnat. Excuse me. What? <laughs> it's the pilot's notes for the fallen gnat. Oh, for the gnat. Okay. Gnat. So yes. I was thinking. Gnat, the, I thought you said the, the fallen gnat, and I'm thinking fallen. I gotcha. F gotcha. A double L and D. I guess. I might have to get a drink just to be able to follow Nick today. <laughs> Am I slurring my words or something? No, 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 you're just talking in your English language. <laughs> oh right, okay. It's strange to us Americans. Yeah. I do understand that. Yeah. <laughs> Talk a I'll little do my bit best slower. To translate. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm over at my friend's garbar trying to understand his brother. Well, actually, it's an interesting uh, that I've actually I, I learned to fly at Fair Oaks, where he took off from. That was my airfield where the flying school was, and that was my very first aviation job was on that airfield because yeah. that's not how far from where I used to live. And of course, I spent uh, um, six months as a student at Valley, and then four years as a flying instructor there. So that's a long sentence. There. Yeah, it's a long sentence, isn't it? You you can get away with less for manslaughter <laughs> so um i guess you know london doesn't i mean this beach may be not the best beach in the world but at least it's better than any beach you might find in london right yeah fair oaks doesn't have any beaches there's okay. a few sand pits yeah a few mm -hmm. uh yeah full of water a few gravel pits <clears throat> so yeah i tried i once tried to sunbathe at the side of the river thames there it didn't go too well so. <laughs> Oh, no, well, tide, to... tide came in and you got washed away. Yeah, yeah, it went pretty. <laughs> and everyone was calling you a mudlark. <laughs> the, a what log? A mud, a mudlark. <laughs> oh, sorry. It's a nickname for the people who go onto the banks of the Thames in London and uh, try and find old artifacts. Oh, that's right. That's right. I've heard about that. Huh. Mm. No, I just oh. was there for the beautiful weather and the sun. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> nice you. As you do, yes, exactly so, right. Um, so, yes, I have questions. Yeah, this guy is a pilot of a Pilatus. Mm -hmm. yeah, he did his research airplane. on Google Earth, mm -hmm. read about it on Wikipedia. It didn't say whether he was the owner of the aircraft, but I think someone's got perhaps a little bit more money than sense here. Yeah, the aircraft is registered to Rosedale Aviation Incorporated, based in Wilmington, Delaware, because it had a USN number. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, it's a U.S. airplane. That explains it there all. There you go. But I think that yeah. somewhere it said that he was actually um, a Brit. So, I sorry. I believe that. <laughs> so, what, what, forget it. Anyway. No, it just makes me wonder, because, you know, all this stuff, I feel like the guy went and got his license in, in a Chuck E. Cheese's from the claw machine, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, what the heck? Like Fisher Price School of Aviation. Well, um, how was he able to fly the airplane, though? I mean, he's got to have some, I don't know, wits about him, maybe? Well, it's a November red. I don't know. So he must have flown 
I, I doubt he even knows what a blue spruce route is, because how the heck do you get a Pilatus from North America to England? Oh, it, it started off in England. It had a yeah. British registration before oh, it, did? Oh. it got an American registration. Uh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. About eight years or something ago, it was transferred. Oh, yes, it was Golf, to the American India, Lima, Mike, Delta. Okay, good. So that answers that. Good for him, because otherwise, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't yeah. been ugly. Perhaps he thought he was. Uh, he didn't have to obey British rules once he got an American registration. On the oh, that's a good point. <laughs> Can't tell yeah, me what to do. Out of hell with your laws. <laughs> yeah, he thought I'll just land on the right side of the runway, and you know that, that that's that it. Be right. Avoid the work in progress. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, needless to say, they weren't very happy there, and they basically said, um, "We can't let you go until tomorrow." But I think he went ahead and took off anyway, didn't he? Said he was departing regardless, and they chose not to block the aircraft in. It's like, watch me. Okay. Well, so right. I have a feeling. I don't know. We have, don't have any follow up on this, but I have a feeling that he might be in a little bit of trouble. I well, I think sets a bit of a bad example if people can swan around landing on military bases uh, uh, without doing any flight planning, work in progress, and then check his no towns and claims he's going to wander off the base and go to the beach. Um, if everyone started doing it without any recompense, then, oh, good Lord, you could imagine what other people would be going to Heathrow going, oh, I've... I've I'm going to get on my flight now and go to Chicago. I just thought I'd bring my Piper in and park it. I'll park it over here. But no one will mind. Yeah, it, it, it's funny you mentioned that, Nixter, because uh, the last couple of weeks, you know, flying around um, big airports, you, you, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with this, but uh, it's kind of interesting to, to, to hear, um, you know, small GA airplanes doing, you know, pattern work at Kennedy or O'Hare. And you can, you know, I mean, they're, they're they doing, did plenty at Charlotte here. They were you know, accommodating and, them. And it's mm-hmm. it's funny because the controllers, you can you can hear it in their voices are a little, okay, they get a little irritated after a little while. You know? <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. But uh, hey, I mean, when I was going to flight school, there was nothing going on in uh, at MCO uh, Orlando International because I went to flight school in Sanford, Florida, just north of Orlando International. And, and for me, at that stage of my of my flight training, you know, landing into an airport that had. Uh, runway centerline lights and an approach lighting system I was like, wow, this is big time. So, uh, you know, if you can do it, do it. But Absolutely. just, you know, just don't, don't, don't do it. it do it legally. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Do, do yeah. some flight planning. Do your, home, do your actual homework. Do your actual flight planning. Yeah. I don't look it up on, you know, Google Earth and Wikipedia. No. no. Okay. Well, I think we all learned from something from that. And maybe pick a better beach too. <laughs> I yeah, if you're going to go to a beach, make it a reasonable beach. For exactly. So what, what beach would you have flown to then, Nick, uh, since you're a resident? Oh, of uh, which beach would I have gone to? I yeah. think I'd have gone to somewhere in Bermuda, I think. Well, I mean, <laughs> like within reason, like within around the same within distance. Reason. <laughs> like within reach of London. Yeah. Well, that, that airplane should be get to the south of France, shouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah. True. You know? Retro Vieira. Cannes, somewhere yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. Good point. Where all the topless girls are. Oh, they're, they're, I promise you, there are no topless ladies on that Valley Beach. <laughs> I don't know if there's any ladies on that beach. <laughs> it's pretty deserted from your well, We used to walk our dogs there, so occasionally you get someone on it. <laughs> Gotta do something. Well, there's not all much right. else to do in that place. <laughs> you know, they used to shut the pubs on Sundays. I mean, for heaven's sake. Really? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you couldn't get a you couldn't get a beer on a Sunday unless you were a member of a private club. Probably a lot of cl- private clubs. Oh yeah, 
The one, I wonder if it's still open. The, the one in my local village was called the Sandy Mount. And uh, uh, we used to go in there on a Sunday. And have, <laughs> That's what yeah. you get if you spent the day at the beach. Exactly. <laughs> Sandy Mount. <laughs> All right. Moving on. Uh, uh, do we have to? Yeah. Uh, Item B. Beechcraft 200 Super King Air. Final report. Uh, this is out of Australia. And it happened on the 8th of December in 2018. The pilot of a Desert Air Safari Beach 200, B200, registration Victor Hotel, Oscar Delta, India, prepared to conduct a charter flight from Adelaide, Australia to Mount Gam- Gambier, Gambier. What is it, Nick? I don't know. I'm, I'm editing a picture right oh, now. Okay. Gam- Mount Gambier. Is that how you said that? Gambier. Gambier. Okay. No, it's Australia. I'm sure it's just With uh, seven passengers on board. One of the passengers occupied the right flight deck seat, the right flight deck seat as an observer. This Compared observer. to the wrong <clears throat> flight deck seat. Yeah, yeah. that's true. It's, you don't want to be in the wrong one. This observer held a commercial pilot license, but was not a member of the flight crew. At 11.09, the flight departed Adelaide. During the flight, the pilot received a special weather report stating overcast cloud at 512 feet um, above mean sea level, below the approach minimum descent altitude, or MDA, of 730 AMSL. The special weather report also reported visibility greater than 10 nautical miles, no, 10 kilometers, and a southerly wind of 11 knots. At 12 o'clock... Uh, ODI commenced, I guess that's the, uh, yeah, the, uh, that's the registration. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, the airplane, the incident airplane commenced the runway one eight RNAV approach behind a preceding aircraft. As the preceding aircraft continued the approach, the flight crew of that aircraft received an alert indicating the loss of the GNSS receiver autonomous integrity monitoring, uh, which is RAIM RAIM and conducted a go around. Uh, Despite not receiving a similar alert, the pilot of ODI also elected to conduct a go-around. He climbed the aircraft to an altitude of 5,000 feet and proceeded with the missed approach procedure to waypoint MTGNE to commence another approach. The other aircraft then advised that they would hold at waypoint MTGND while ODI conducted the approach. At 12.15, ODI commenced a second approach to runway 18 from waypoint MTGNE. During the flight and approaches, the observer contributed to the operation of the aircraft by calling out operational checklists and monitoring the approach and calling out excursions from the target altitudes. The approach chart indicated that a normal descent profile should position the aircraft at 980 feet, 2 nautical miles prior to the missed approach point at MTGNM. As the aircraft crossed this point, the pilot announced that the aircraft was too fast by far and high. On multiple occasions throughout the approach, the pilot questioned and corrected information provided by the observer and educated her on the operation of the flight. As the aircraft descended to 730 feet, the observer announced that they had reached the MDA. Upon reaching the MDA, the pilot or minimum descent altitude, the pilot could see the ground directly beneath the aircraft, but could not see the runway ahead. He then announced that he would conduct a go around and retracted the landing gear without announcing, announcing that he had done so. The observer was unaware that the landing gear had been retracted. After the pilot announced the go-around, the engine power level did not increase. Hmm. Nine seconds after the landing gear was was retracted, the pilot and observer sighted the runway. Then the pilot reduced power and selected full flap to continue the approach. He noted that the required approach profile from that position was, quote, very steep. 
At that time, the landing gear warning tone activated. As the approach continued, the ground proximity warning system, check gear, oral alert, also activated. In response, the pilot incorrectly announced that the landing gear was extended. The approach continued. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> don't, yeah. don't worry about that. Trust me, I'm a gynecologist, and the landing gear is extended. <laughs> the approach continued, and five seconds later, the GPWS alert pull-up also activated. The observer announced that the pull-up warning had activated. <laughs> I know, I can hear it. <laughs> the pilot acknowledged this call, announced, I've got it, and continued the approach. Oh, no, that's not good. Oh, boy. <laughs> there we go. Watch this. <laughs> Hold my beer. <laughs> One second what later, the pull-up and check gear alerts ceased, but the landing gear warning tone continued. The pilot and observer both later recalled not hearing the landing gear warning tone or GPWS check gear alerts. That's that psychology thing again. At 12.22, the aircraft briefly touched down on the propellers and bounced. Two seconds later, the propellers again again contacted the runway. The pilot, believing the landing gear was down and the aircraft had... that runway. Take that. (laughs) (laughs) That. That's that's one way to groove the runway. (laughs) (laughs) Believing that the landing gear was down and the aircraft had landed on the runway, twice attempted unsuccessfully to engage reverse thrust. (laughs) Wonder why. (laughs) (laughs) The aircraft continued flying above the runway at low level and began to drift right toward the runway edge. The pilot, believing the aircraft to be rolling on the landing gear and not responding to brake inputs... Huh, the brakes don't work. <laughs> Assessed that it could not be stopped in the remaining I'm runway. Sorry, why, why, why am I laughing? I don't know. I, I'm just imagining the incredible racket that is being made by these propellers or something. Well, hey, it's not over yet. Wait, more crazy <laughs> stuff. Wouldn't give it yeah, away either. Wouldn't give it away. So, so he was not able to stop in the remaining runway, elected to conduct a go-around. Ooh. He then increased engine power and observed good initial response from both engines, followed shortly after by failure of the left engine. The pilot completed the initial engine failure actions and announced gear up, flap up, and the landing gear warning horn, no, warning tone then ceased operating, consistent with flap retraction. Following the flap retraction, the stall warning activated intermittently for 16 seconds. The pilot shut down and secured the left engine, assessed that the right engine was performing as expected. He then conducted a visual left circuit at an altitude of 600 to 650 feet above mean sea level. And at 1224, the aircraft landed on runway 18 and vacated to runway 29, where it was shut down. The observer assisted with passenger disembarkation onto runway 29 and escorted them clear of the runway. No persons were injured during the accident. However, the aircraft was substantially damaged. Wow. <laughs> that is and there are a couple so pictures good. in here that I don't yes. see the props. <laughs> yes, I Ow. Yeah. I thought those were winglets for the props. Yeah, really, well, yeah, yeah. sort of look like it. And then you, you see the uh, marks on the runway. The, uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of really kind of a minor miracle that they didn't, that something worse didn't happen here. Like, just, and I'm, I'm just, just I'm just happy he was, he was, he was above, uh, you know, MCA. Yeah, uh, definitely. You know? Minimum controller MCL, speed. Exactly. Minimum controller speed. Because if, if so, on, on, I've never flown a turboprop, but I've flown prop airplanes, of course, uh, multi prop, uh, prop airplanes. And I'm not sure if this one has it. I'm sure it does. Uh, but uh, most uh, um, multi prop engine, uh, prop uh, airplanes will, on the airspeed indicator, there'll be a red radial line. And that's your, uh, that's your VMCA. So that's if, if you're flying below that red line, 
single engine, you don't have enough rudder authority to counteract that dissimilar thrust, and you'll just, you know, hard over and crash. So that's why whenever you have a single engine situation, you always, always, always have to be above that red line. Otherwise, you just can't control the airplane. That is a miracle. Wow. Uh, now I'm, I'm going to be interested to see what the uh, what the write-up looks like about the brakes not working. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of write-ups on that airplane. Yeah. Yeah. Reverse is not <laughs> working. Brakes don't work. Well, you know, the, so the <laughs> left engine fields. The, obviously, as soon as the decision was made, which was the correct decision to conduct a go-around the first time, um, or a missed approach, actually, uh, and if they had just continued with the missed approach procedure, all would be well, right? But no, they were suckered into it. Oh, I, I can see it now. Mm-hmm. We're going to be kind of steep, but that's okay. We, we can, you know, we can make so it. So they've already gone past, they've been flying at, you know, that minimum descent altitude. So that's going to make you that much steeper if you haven't descended at that point and you've gone on for another, however long, nine seconds in this case, but. Yeah. And and that's just the thing. You begin a go around and you just have to continue. You just follow through. You never interrupt a go around, no matter how big or how small the airplane is, because at the point where you go around, you've made that decision. It's kind of like when you touch down and you deploy reverse thrust. At that point, you are committed to rolling out. Yep. You know, there's just certain gates that you just can't go back on. I, I thought think, it was. Uh, go ahead, Dana. I think there's a bit of showboating going on here. Because it mentioned the yeah. commercial pilot sitting in the right seat that was long for a ride, not obviously not uh, certified for that aircraft. However, didn't indicate there was a female, and I think this guy was probably trying to show well, off. He was educating her, I think it said. At some yes, point. So that, you know, there was a little <laughs> little snippet in there. Yeah, he educated. He was educating her how to land an airplane properly, do a proper approach, then go ahead and you know make sure you don't put the landing gear down, just chip away at the, the <laughs> runway, do a go around on one engine. He just had to show this particular person how to do it all properly. That's how you do it, there, Dana. Yeah, I think I think that it. played into this substantially. Well, I and thought, about the, I'm sorry, go ahead. Jeff. I thought it was interesting that they said when he, when they executed the go around procedure, the engine power did not increase. I'm thinking that's one of the first things that happens in a go around. I mean, it's the first thing that happens around mm-hmm. toga power. Make sure that the throttles are the thrust levers, whatever the heck you want to call them. The engines are spooling up and providing power because that's, what's going to get you above, you know, climbing away from the ground. And we're going to find out that uh, this happens on occasion. Another mm-hmm. story in the news that we're going to talk about where, you know, the same thing happened. They didn't make sure that the thrust was coming up. And I just thought that was a, not normal. A lot of things not normal about this particular yeah. and incident. It's actually, and it's actually mm-hmm. a procedure. A lot of airlines, you know, you, you when, when you go around, obviously, you, you have to initiate the go around somehow. Some airplanes have switches. Some airplanes, you just move the the thrust levers uh, forward. Uh, but the ones that, you know, on Boeing's, for example, um, you have servos that uh, move those thrust levers around. And a way to initiate that go around is either by a, a, a button in the front of the thrust levers or a paddle in the back of the thrust, uh, thrust levers, like the 7.5 and the 7.6. But the fact that you're hitting that, it doesn't, doesn't, you know, as you hit that paddle or you hit that button, you actually have to end procedure is, at least in my airline, to, to push them. Yes. Make sure that power goes up. Now, uh, you're not going to be able to do that, obviously. Well, I don't think you can in an Airbus, right? Or do you you actually move the levers to oh, you got a toga. toga position, right? And there's no – so you are also physically pushing those levers forward. 
Yeah, but that, that's the trigger uh, to set okay. the go around in progress. So actually, you can't go around without pushing the throttles forward, which is actually the perfect, uh, for me anyway, uh, the perfect um, way of selecting uh, a go around. Uh, so you get the right symbology and mm-hmm. it flows the right profile because it also it ensures you've got the engines at full power. This is just evidence of people's reliance upon automation, assuming that, oh, I hit the button. Well, it's supposed to do this, but it doesn't always do it. Yeah, you know? there's no there's no auto throttles on a, on a 200. Okay. Mm. So in this case, I, that just should be the natural motion of a goer. I mean, I, I'm thinking in my head, you know, pull the yoke back and push the power forward. I mean, that just should be an automatic reaction to a pilot. Right? You're right. Except uh, on my very first trip uh, in the simulator in the left-hand seat, I can say this now because I'm retired. Um, on my first go-around, because I'd been used to doing everything with the other hands, oh, on my first go-around uh, at decision height, I started by closing the throttles and pushing the stick forward. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? Wait a minute. Yeah, because I, yeah. I was used to being in the right-hand seat, and, and you would – Move your left hand forward and your right hand back. Now I'm in the left hand seat and I've got to do that in reverse. So he put the yeah. thing on freeze and go, okay, let's talk about this. Well, I didn't do it for long because it like went, whoa, bang. And I, I corrected myself. It's your and, intention oh, to me. That was good here. Uh, yeah, yeah, everyone but... just turned and looked at me. <laughs> like, what the hell? What, like, the... what are you doing, Anderson? <laughs> I said, okay, I would do that again. Can I do that over? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, let's let's do that when one again. Was, I'll, I'll, trading trip. So I'll, I'll put I'll put you back at uh, the, you know at a five mile final and uh, yep, just, yep. just look we'll down. Just take I'll a look look. down for now. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, all right, exactly right. <laughs> oh man. Anyway, yeah. so obviously uh, this is a really um, messed up uh, approach and go around and landing attempt. And <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I was gonna say it's just a little odd because it sounds like this was a this was a chartered flight. Was that correct? Yeah, a chartered flight. So, but they have an observer, and it didn't say what her, you know, was she someone who is there as a passenger? I mean, I yeah. know she's got a commercial certificate, but why is she doing anything related to the operation? I mean, you know, so in boring. case of emergency, I could see that, but there was no emergency up until the very end of the. Doctor Seth, think about yourself when you're flying parachute jumpers around. You sit in the right seat. That's basically yeah. what she was doing, and she if she's mm-hmm. long for a ride, probably. I thought those those uh, marks were very neat. I mean, they're right on the center line. It, it, well, it's exactly what it's right. exactly <laughs> what a manatee looks like in Florida after a boat prop hits it. I know. <laughs> exactly oh, what that looks like. Oh, oh, oh no! Yeah, but those marks yep. should not Save be on the, the center manatees. line, right? If the mm-hmm. nose wheel was on the center line on those. Well, yeah, I'm not saying an airplane was it, but it's rather neat. I mean, yeah. if you're going to put a set of lines down the runway, do it in the middle. It's good. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. They did so they had, the, they had the prop over the center line. Yeah, exactly. So he wasn't, but no. there you go. <laughs> so, Steph, are you? I'm kind of gathering from what you just said that you thought that the, if you're sitting in the right seat, if even you're though in the you're right a qualified seat, you're, pilot, you shouldn't say anything? Pilot, if you're not there with in any sort of um, you know official capacity with the company that's operating it, I just don't understand. I mean, if I don't know what the whole situation was here. So maybe she was there um, as an observer with the company and, and they had an agreement in place. But if she was just a passenger, because um, I've had that situation where I've been a passenger on an aircraft and I've been up in the uh, the right seat um, on a commercial operation and it's 
you know, I'm not the one operating that aircraft and I have no reason to be calling out anything okay. um, on the, the checklist or anything else. Like that just seems very distracting and against what the company SOPs would be. Yeah. And, and, and well, I think, I, I believe a lot of these airplanes are just, you know, Oh, like it's DC-12. They're single pilot. Single pilot? Yeah, so single pilot operation. I can introduce somebody else. I mean, unless she's there to learn the operations of the company or something, you know, something along those lines. I don't know that there's any reason why she should be. Well, number one goes back to what I said earlier: showboating. So if she was a passenger that was just happened to be a commercial pilot, happened to be sitting in the right seat up there because that's the extra seat on the airplane, you know, this guy obviously was talking his way through some things with with this person and showboating a little bit went below minimums and number two beachcraft 200 you don't even need a type rating you just need technically an insurance checkout mm-hmm. and simulator single pilot so yeah the, I, we don't know the true extent of what this person sitting in the right seat job or 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 position was there whether they were just going along as a part of part of a charter guest or as part of a person that's learning the ropes for the airline. So we are this charter yeah. company. So we don't know that answer, but in either, just either like case, they, were, they weren't, qual- they weren't in agreement. On, yeah. And either way yeah. they weren't in agreement with, you know, with each other. Yeah. And, and the no, last and thing I want to you know, face it, he went, he went below minimums. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to touch on here was that the reason for the go around itself. So, um, so the, the article mentions Rame uh, receiver autonomous integrity and monitoring. So it's basically the, the, um, if you're going to be flying a an RNAV approach or or um, or GPS approach, obviously based on on GPS, uh, this is a type of approach that does not rely on on uh, on ground sources, ground transmitters like an ILS does. You know, for you know localizer for azimuth and glide for for uh, for glide path angle, record glide slip down to the ground. This this type of approach is is uh, is flown exclusively based on satellite. Uh, information, and so in the end route portion of the flight, as you're flying from point A to point B, the tolerances are greater. And as you start approaching the airport, those tolerances get smaller and smaller and smaller. So you have en route, then you have terminal, and then obviously you have your 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 actual arrival. And the relationship between what the tolerance tolerances are to where you are that's called that's A and P or uh, or, or RNP required navigational performance and a and uh, actual navigational performance. So the ANP has to be within RNP. Anytime that ANP is outside of RNP or, or your actual navigational performance of your equipment is outside those boundaries, then the system is going to tell you that it's unable to navigate based on that source of information. And so it's obviously critical that as you get closer to the airport, ANP is within RNP, and in fact, the times that you fly that I've that I've flown uh, GPS approaches, that is a go around item. And actually, the the system itself it, it, it's it's a it's a uh, it's a caution. It'll actually and, and it's a, it's a visual caution and an oral caution. It'll tell you unable RNP, which tells you obviously that the airplane cannot fly. The system cannot track properly to the runway, uh, obviously based on those parameters, and you have to do an, an immediate uh, immediate go around. Also, another interesting thing is that the um, your your uh, your minimums, your straight-in minimums for GPS approaches are only 15 degrees. So the 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 area that that covers is 15 degrees, whereas ILSs and VORs is 30 degrees on the runway. There, so it's it's a lot more. Uh, it has to be precise, otherwise, you know, you have to go around. 
A pilot Pip has chimed in, said that in many or most parts of the world, a King Air needs a type rating. I think we is were, it uh, is it above twelve five? I think it is. Yeah, yeah the King Air at least the probably one hundred and up. Maybe the ninety is not. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, anything uh, above twelve five, you need a. Well, it sounds okay. like Dana so, might uh, do some research on that one. Disagree, but we'll see. I do disagree. Well, here in the United <clears> States, <throat> at least. I don't know. Maybe other parts of the world may be right. All right. Well, while you check that out, why don't we move on to the next item in our news notebook? And this event also occurred um, a little while back. Let's see. Trying to decide or figure out what, when exactly. It looks like the 16th of July in 2018. Um, and we have two different, uh, article sources, uh, flightglobal.com and also aviation Herald. Um, we'll start with the, uh, flight global report by David Kaminsky Morrow. Bulgarian investigators have revealed that a Boeing MD 82 almost stalled while nose high at low level after the crew did not engage, go around thrust during a missed approach at Tarbes Lourdes Airport, Lourdes, Tarbes, Tarbes, Lourdes Airport, Lourdes, France. The Bulgarian air charter aircraft descended to 40 feet while still nearly 500 meters from the runway, flying close to the ground for over 800 meters before a go-around decision and nearly 1.7 kilometers before the engines powered up. Such was the alarming attitude of the MD-82 that the Tarbes air traffic controllers notified French investigators that they had watched the aircraft as it flew over the entire runway at abnormally high pitch and low speed, unable to climb with its tail just 20 meters or 65 feet from the ground. The controller's notification compared the site to that of the Air France Airbus A320, which failed to climb away and carved into a forest following a low pass at the 1988 Habsheim Air Show. But the MD-82, it states, managed to start climbing at the end of the runway. It flew very close to a hill and turned left, diverting to Toulouse. Full details of the serious event could not be obtained because the aircraft's captain did not report the incident immediately to airline management or ground personnel, who was hoping that nobody would see it, I guess. Except for the pictures? Yeah, uh, which meant the uh, cockpit voice recorder data was not retrieved. It was recorded yeah. over. But the flight data recorder captured that the... Okay, so the cockpit voice recorder didn't capture anything, but the flight data recorder did. It, it captured the dynamics of the event as the aircraft Lima Zulu, Lima Delta Mike arrived from Catania on uh, Catania. Catania. That's in uh, Spain, right? Catania. No, it's uh, Italy. Oh, okay. On the 16th of July, 2018. Some 90 seconds before arrival, it had been fully configured and stable on the ILS Glide Soap for runway 20 according to the Bulgarian Ministry of Transport's Aircraft Accidents Investigation Unit. At about 470 feet above ground, the first officer who was flying disengaged the autopilot, leaving the autothrottle active with a speed setting of 140 knots. But he was unable to maintain the heading and glide slope because the aircraft was subjected to strong wind gusts and heavy rain. The jet started to deviate to the left and descend below the glide path, prompting the captain to take control. Despite the aircraft's straying outside of the stable approach criteria, including falling significantly under the glide path, the captain did not order a go-around. 
The auto throttle was disengaged at 85 feet above the ground, and at 59 feet, the captain raised the aircraft's pitch from 4 degrees to 11 degrees without increasing engine power. It descended to around 40 feet while still 480 meters from the runway threshold and flew horizontally at this height for 10 seconds, while its airspeed fell from 136 knots to 128 knots. The aircraft crossed the threshold right at the center line, and the, quote, extremely concerned first officer suggested a go-around, says the inquiry. There's a picture also included here from the Bulgarian AAIU that's showing the very high uh, pitch angle of the jet and also the spray of water coming off the runway from the thrust of the engines, and apparently not full thrust on the engines. After the jet had uh, traveled 350 meters, still at low height along the runway, the captain ordered to go around and, and increase the aircraft's pitch, while the first officer retracted the flaps from 40 degrees to 11 degrees, raised the landing gear, and selected an airspeed of 180 knots. But neither crew member realized that the thrust levers had been left close to idle, and that after the auto throttle, throttle had, been in, had been disengaged, the jet operated for 29 seconds without the thrust required for a go around. The airspeed bled away to 116 knots as the aircraft's pitch increased to 15 degrees. Its lift hampered by the flap retraction, and only when the first officer was disarming the spoilers did he notice that the thrust levers had not been advanced. Flight data recorder information shows the thrust levers were aggressively pushed forward as the aircraft was still laboring at 71 feet and 119 knots. Three seconds later, the pitch reached its maximum of just under 20 degrees while the aircraft's angle of attack attack reached 38.6 degrees. Wow. That is one forgiving (laughs) airplane. Yes. So the aircraft aircraft traveled uh, (laughs) 1.68 kilometers without sufficient thrust due to critical angles of attack and stall speeds at heights varying from 33 to 107 feet before the go-around power was applied. Um, There was a point here that they were talking about the fact that they believe that the airplane, maybe it was in the Aviation uh, Herald article, that it was this airplane, uh, one of the worst things that you can get it into is something called a deep stall. And they think that they were extremely close to that situation. Uh, They just avoided getting it into a deep stall, which means that the the tail, the uh, horizontal stabilizer elevator would basically have no effect at all in trying to recover from a stall. And they were just very, very close to a complete tragic end. As Christian, though, says in the chat room, great low pass. <laughs> yeah, the aviation I'm, geeks were loving it. Yeah. Now, like, quick question, Jeff, now that you've, you've flown that airplane for so many years, how susceptible are those engines and to, to, uh, to, you know, uh, how, how do they deal with that, uh, that, uh, turbulent air coming off the, uh, the, the wing there? Is that have the, we never, ever been even anywhere close to that situation? But, I don't you know. know. Like simulator <laughs> no, I don't recall Dana. Have you ever been in that kind of situation? Even in the simulator? I don't think so. I, I don't think the engines, uh, at that point are really being affected by, by no. the turbulent airflow because. It, it it never was an issue. Yeah. Um. You know the, the only with with when they were doing the testing on the aircraft, uh, that's when they discovered that the elevators didn't have enough authority to push the nose over to get it out of that deep stall that Jeff just uh, referenced. So, um, I I don't remember ever having a compressor issue or, or the engine stalling out because of the lack of airflow mm-hmm. through them, even in the simulator. Okay. 
Yeah. Now the 727, I think that would have been a different story. We, there were, you know, I did experience that in the simulator, uh, the disrupted airflow over the intakes, but that, that airplane, especially that center engine on the 727 was very, very susceptible to flow, uh, from that S duct into the middle engine. Yeah. Be very careful when you were doing, uh, if you had any crosswind at all, when you were taking off, in fact, we had a technique where you bring up one and three, and then once the airplane was rolling down the runway, you know, 60 knots or so, you start slowly bringing in the number two engine so you don't uh, get compressor stalls. Yes. Anyway. Bring the Lord for ground effect is all I can say. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Really, without ground effect, that would have been a crash. Oh, yeah. Again, I just don't understand. I mean, it should be your automatic reaction. That, you know, you, even though you've, you know, called for a go around, you've hit the toga buttons or whatever it is that you do to get the thing to go into a go around mode, you got to move your arm and push those throttles up. I just don't, yeah. I don't, that would uh, never it's, happen it's, with me. It would always the, be. The, <laughs> it's the same that happened on that triple seven, uh, in was Abu Dhabi or Dubai. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I did a go around, hit the toga buttons, but nothing happened because no. you'd already touched down. And he well, failed yeah, to follow through by advancing the throttles. See, the the triple seven has a, has a uh, well, really all Boeing's. Um, it has something called the Toga dead zone. So if you are the Toga takeoff go around dead zone. So if you get below uh, five feet radio altitude, and you linger there for more than a couple of seconds, the go around switches basically they're inhibited. They're, they're disconnected because the airplane's logic assumes that you're going to land. And so that's what you have to be careful about. Then, so you you you, you hit the thro- uh, you hit the toga button or toga switch or the paddle or whatever it is, you push them forward, and then the PM pilot monitoring. You know, one of the things that you look for is a change in what's called um, a flight mode enunciation or an FMA. Now, these FMAs are going to be somewhere in the front panel, either you know the newer airplanes up on on, on the top of your primary flight display. Um, you're going to have a thrust mode, a lateral mode, a vertical mode, and an autopilot mode, whether the autopilot is connected or you're you know, flying manually, flight director mode. And so you're looking on, on Boeing's, you're looking for a thrust reference or, or go-around indication on that thrust portion of your um, uh, FMAs. And that, in fact, confirms that the thrust mode is gone from you know idle or landing thrust or to your go-around thrust required to fly the go around, but push the damn things forward because otherwise, you know, you, you just yeah. don't know. You, you know, maybe I'm, I'm new to this podcast. No, I'm really not. But does it seem to you guys lately we've been talking a lot more about these really, really bad pilot errors that are they're just showing up? And this this right here, you know, the, the logic, Rick, is, is very similar on the 88 and 90, uh, you know, not that five-second lag there. Um, but you know, it's the same thing. We've got an FMA, you know, we used to call it the scoreboard and that would tell us, you know, we'd have to verify, verify the go around has been engaged. Right. Um, but if the auto throttles are not off, unless you push them forward and we verify that too, that the throttles are coming up, if they're not, then you push them up. That's what we're supposed to do. So good pilot skills require that you know what you're doing in the heat of battle. However, you know, even with this last thing we talked about with the king here, if somebody is just not hearing, uh, and we talked about it last week, if somebody's not hearing the warning because they've mentally blocked it out, uh, have, don't do a procedure because they've mentally blocked it out, 
you know, what else can you do? I mean, can you have a dog sitting in the jump seat and biting you if, if you if you don't hear or see or do what is required by the checklist? It's just good piloting skills. Mm, I don't, yeah. I don't, I really don't understand why, you know, what's the missing link? Why, why do we have an uptick in these types of instances happening? I, I don't know, Dana, but it goes back a long way. You think of the. Uh, the Florida 737 takeoff in snow out yep. of uh, Washington. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They had those throttles set, but they could at any time during that takeoff have Push just them pushed them up to full power. But they left them in what they thought was the flex position and flew themselves into the the Potomac River. Yep. That's right. um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's not an uncommon thing, sadly. Yeah. That's true. And I'm just sitting here listening to all this, you know, thinking, is this, you know, is it training? Is it complacency? Is it all of the above? Is it just being oversaturated in the moment when trying to figure out what's going on? Um, probably yeah. all of the above. Yeah. And I think it's, it's so I, I go around, it's, it's, it's really just a standard maneuver. It's, it's really nothing, you know, I mean, when, when you go to the simulator, you know that you're going to be doing nothing but go arounds. But the thing is that once you go, you know, got into the line and start flying the line, uh, everybody, you know, every pilot up there, you know, they, they fly an approach to land, but in fact, you have to fly an approach to go around. And if you land, then, you know, that's good. So that's, that's kind of the, the, the mentality kind of, and if you go around, that might be good too. Well, that's what probably, good. yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, so you just, just, just kind of hard you know, to get yourself into that mindset though, isn't fly, it? Fly the it 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 really is hard to get into that mindset because uh, yeah, I don't know about you guys, but I think I've gone around in my career, and it's almost 19 years of flying, four, maybe five times in reality in 19 years as a professional airline pilot. Think about that. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, yes, you have to be of the mentality that you're going around, and you know, there's certain procedures we need to follow. You know, one of the things that I used to brief. Uh, from the left seat is okay. We do have these procedures and we know how to verbally do them. However, the two things that we need to make sure when we go around is we are flying away from the ground with a throttle, with a power up. I don't care about anything else. As long as we are doing that, mm. yep. that we're not, you know, flying away from the, you know, and obviously if we stall, you don't want to stall the airplane, but flying away from the ground with a power up. Those are the two biggest things that you need to muscle memory do basics, fly the airplane back to basics back to basics pitch and power. all right we can sit here and try to go through all the procedures exactly how they have them written well that's great in the sim world and that's great in the real world if you can't don't know how to fly the airplane and that's unfortunately i think we're heading that way a little bit too much with the the automation we get too dependent and we've talked about this over and over and over on this podcast about getting dependent on the automation you gotta remember to fly the damn airplane and that's what I think is getting lost here. That's true. That's true. And now there's going to be a question here. Well, so if uh, so, you're coming in to land and you disconnect the autopilot, disconnect the auto throttle. So wasn't the auto throttle disconnected? How is it that when you hit toga, the throttles go back up? They, they are don't. in fact. They are in fact. Um, at least on 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 Boeing's. Uh, when you disconnect the auto throttle from the throttle quadrant itself with a disconnect the auto throttle disconnect button on the actual throttle you know the lever uh the throttles the servo control of the throttles is taken out of the loop 
but the system itself is not disconnected. The, well, the, it the, is on the uh, on the uh, on, the, on this airplane. Yeah, right. You, yeah. you disconnect the throttles; they're not going to work. Yeah, no on, matter on, what happens. On, on Boeing's, on Boeing's, the 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 auto throttle system is armed. Mm-hmm. So you hit uh, you hit Toga or a go around switch, they'll come back up. The auto throttle will actually come back up and 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 give you that Toga power. Um, and it works interestingly because a single push of a toga button or switch will give you the thrust required to give you a 2000 foot a minute climb. And a second push will give you full takeoff reference thrust power on seven fours, triple sevens, seven, eight sevens on the seven, five, seven, seven, six, seven. You only get to push that paddle once and you only get the thrust required to give you that 2000 foot a minute. climb. What about the uh, Boeing seven one seven? How's that work? Uh, I don't know. You're, you're going to have to tell me. I'm going to find here. out, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. How does 737 work, buddy? Same way, buddy. You're going to love it. Okay. Love it. Um, that was a good discussion on that. Let's uh, keep it moving, if you all don't Before mind. Before you, you move want... on, yes. I looked up the information oh. on the King Air 200. Yeah. It is below 12,500. So in the United States of America, no type rating. However, starting with the 250, it bumped up above the 12,500. So it's King Air 250 and above 300 oh. and so forth do require type rating. So specifically the 200 and Queen Air and 100 don't require. Okay. So it just depends on what particular model you have and how Correct. heavy it is. Okay. Very good. At least Thank in you. the United States by the FAA. Yeah. Yes. Right. And it's, it's very plausible that other countries Probably require the type ratings. Yeah. Mm. Or maybe not. Maybe that, yeah. As yeah, Steph said, maybe it's different. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, item D, uh, update. Uh, you'll remember the tragic um, loss of life from the... Uh, the uh, what would we call her? The officer. Um, her name. Um, she was the public affairs public officer. Affairs, public relations. That's it. Yeah. Public affairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Captain Jennifer Casey, thirty-five year, thirty-five years old. She died. Um, both uh, pilots ejected, um, but she did not live through it. Uh, but the other, uh, the pilot did uh, with serious injuries. He continues to recover from his injuries. Uh, so it's just an update here that in us, cause we try to keep on track, uh, on top of these things to see if there is any, you know, news. Um, and this one says that, uh, the May 17th crash that killed a member of the snowbirds, um, so may have been caused by a bird intake, a detailed analysis of video footage recovered for, uh, for the investigation revealed one bird in very close proximity to the aircraft right engine intake during the critical phase of takeoff. Uh, the investigator with the Department of National Defense's Airworthiness Investigative Authority said in a brief statement. Uh, so, yeah, it's possible that uh, that's what caused the engine to uh, lose power. And uh, just thought we'd, and there's a, well, it will include this in the show notes. There's a uh, freeze frame of the video that shows an object that looks like a bird uh, very close to the airplane. And it uh, looks like it may have been sucked into the right intake. So. Interestingly, I was doing a bit of uh, research into the jet seat system in this aircraft, and I assumed it was Martin Baker. They're not. Oh. Uh, it's an eject seat made by Weber. Uh, the, Weber the people that make seat. the grills? Yeah, yes, <laughs> I suspect yeah, so. It should be really good then. Because <laughs> yeah. Weber makes yeah. a really good grill. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's very true. The seat was built by Weber Aircraft and is still in use in the Canada uh, CT-11 for Tudor Trainer. That was the aircraft, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know a lot about that seat. When I saw 
the movie of uh, the crew ejecting, it looked to me like they, uh, and having seen these things happen in real life, um, that they were a pretty reasonable height to survive an ejection. So I don't know uh, the capabilities of this particular seat. So Yeah, I think it was shame. like a 60 knots forward speed um, required seat. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's not I don't as, know if it had a minimum height. Though. Yeah, I may mm-hmm. have had as well. I think uh, Akhmad has a question and feedback that we're going to hopefully cover today okay. uh, regarding awesome. um, this incident. And he has some questions for us about why they maneuvered the way they did and why the ejection was not successful. So maybe we'll be able to elaborate on that a little bit more during the yeah. feedback. All right. Uh, and then finally, ooh, I saw this and I'm thinking, you know, with this uh, Rona thing uh, out there, the pandemic, and we're, you know, washing our hands with the uh, alcohol-based hand sanitizer. Um, Just wanted to read this special safety alert from the International Association of Oil and Gas Producers. (laughs) uh, (laughs) You know, a usual uh, news source for the APG. Very appropriate for us. Well, you know, I I get their newsletter, so, you know, I try to... Those gas producers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm a a gas producer, actually. This report is in relation to a company customer uh, with an employee who used alcohol-based hand gel sanitizer. So as per the current recommendations for COVID-19 personal hygiene requirements, um, after application, but before the liquid sanitizer has fully evaporated and dried, the individual touched a metal surface where a buildup of static created an ignition source and the sanitizer ignited, resulting in an almost invisible flame on both hands. The individual managed to extinguish the flames, but was left with first and second degree burns. See the picture. That does not look like fun. So anyway, they basically said, yeah, just be careful when you're using these hand sanitizers that if, uh, you know, you're close to an open flame or static electricity or whatever, you could dig. You could ignite everything. So I think you know, I, I have to go back I, and look and see if on like Purell bottles and things or anything that's alcohol based, if it actually has those warnings, because um, so stuff that we use um, for procedures uh, for skin prep solutions are often alcohol based. And we actually have to, if we use one of those in our timeout, state the fire risk nearby, which often gets people's attention when we're just doing a, a cortisone shot. They go, huh? Fire risk. Um you know, what we're not you mean using you have, a, have a nurse with a fire extinguisher there. Well, our fire risk is low because we don't have anything. We shouldn't have anything flammable uh, ah, nearby. Okay. But there are procedures that use cautery and things like that, where you have to give the full three minute dry time and then absolutely verify that that is is dried before you use anything potentially flammable near mm-hmm. the, the field. Because you know, my mouth, risk. my mouth is very jealous of my hands. Ah, yes, because my be... hands are getting more alcohol than my mouth is. <laughs> Really, it tastes very nice. Though, okay, wow! Well, I'm glad you closed that loop. I was thinking, what in the heck is he talking? Yeah, about? yeah, yeah. My hands, my hands. Hand you know that that you know that bodes a, a very interesting question because a lot of things get absorbed through your hands into your body. So if you're what? using alcohol-based hand sanitizer, it's not ethyl alcohol though. No. So it won't. Okay, so that, that I don't. I didn't know. But yeah. I would imagine in this case, maybe they were using higher concentration alcohol-based. Well, well it's got to be above 60% anyway. Yeah. What's that? What goes through your hands into your body? There's a lot of topical medications that can be absorbed through the, the skin surface. Uh, a lot of things can be absorbed through your, your skin surface on your hands. 
I don't oh. think this lasts on your skin surface long enough to be absorbed in any significant quantity because it does evaporate. Well, if you stick it on your tongue, very quickly. Yeah. If you stick it on your tongue, does that work? Hey, Greg, I'm going to please send me some of that, please. I'm just going to say Greg that Peterson in the chat room just said, <laughs> here in Kentucky, we have distilleries making hand sanitizer using old bourbon barrels. I would love to have bourbon barrel smelling hand sanitizer. That would yeah, be amazing. Be like, <laughs> licking your hand. Yeah. The but <laughs> point of order, what Nick said, I would not encourage anyone to. And in fact, I would strongly discourage anyone from tasting their hand sanitizer. So, no, don't what? do that. Okay. Another, uh, another public stop. service okay. uh, advertisement. Or from the APG. Okay. Oh, Neil Lenworm says you have to have use a huge amount of alcohol to see an effect. Mythbuther myth, myth myth did this one. <laughs> Easy for you to say. Thank you. No, not really. <laughs> okay. Well, save me. Save me someone. Getting to know you. Yes, it's that time of the show where we talk at... That picture just cracks me up every time I see it. <laughs> There's an overlay that we're putting on our video right now that's showing the showing the gang with in some interesting poses. <sighs> a backstabber. Yeah, a backstabber yeah. and nonverbal communication from me. The Hawaiian yeah. peace symbol. <laughs> or something like that. Is that what they call it now? I don't know. Um okay. anyway. Actually, you know what? You you you're not to get off topic, Jeff, but that's how we indicate the dock that we're on. Because we're on the eye dock. And your symbol, which I'm not going to put on camera, is what we use for the eye dock. Does anybody have any idea what he's talking about? What's an eye dock? I don't know. The symbol that you just had on that picture of for you with your face. Yeah. With that number one symbol. Yeah. That's what we use to say eye dock. What's an so eye dock? Giving everybody the bird. <laughs> I don't know. The eye dock. I don't know what, what eye dock is. Where my boat is. Where my boat oh, is. Oh, your boat. Where my boat is. Oh, okay. okay. That's why everybody dock. was like, what is he huh? talking I'm sorry. about? <laughs> I was thinking iPad, iPhone, iPhone. I know, I was like, Maybe eye doctor. I don't know. <laughs> I know. Through all the eyes, all right? of those things went through my mind. <laughs> <laughs> we were really trying to understand what you were trying to convey Getting to, to know me. What can I tell you? <laughs> well, we're working on it, working Dana. On why it. don't we just stay with you now that we know all about the iDoc or something about I, it? Yes, iDoc. Yeah, how have you been, man? Uh, you've been I spent obviously a lot of time there. spending a lot of time on your boat. Uh, yeah. So let's just keep going with that. Uh, how's that going? Yeah. Did some did a lot of uh, fixing up of some issues that I had. Uh-huh. Spent several days uh, there this week, and uh, pretty much unless something else goes wrong, knock on wood. It's knocking hard as I can on my head. Um, everything seems to be in order now. Good. So uh, very happy about you, that. You said you were working on your issues. Uh, you were talking about the boat issues, not your own the, personal issues. Yeah, I don't even want to talk about my personal <laughs> issues. We're not even going to talk about that today because I don't want to be in sad. I'm going to keep everything positive. Well, I know, but you have to say, you know, because last All show right. we, we uh, weren't um, aware yet of what um, the um, displacement bid was going to do uh, to us and what airplanes we were going to end up going to. But we had a pretty good idea. And sure enough, what we all thought actually happened. So for you, that for means. You. Yeah, but I think it uh, seems to me, maybe yeah. I'm wrong, but it seemed to me that I'm, you were kind of thinking that you would probably end up as a 737 first officer, I think. Isn't that what we were saying? I'm going to mute my mic and say a few choice words before I come back on here. No. 
Well, hopefully, Anyways, hopefully uh, you can't read lips if you're watching the video. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be flying my least favorite airplane in the sky. And, the gonna, and the reason you bid for it, I love it. But there's <laughs> a positive now, side but, to it. But, 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 there I is a positive to... side. <laughs> Go ahead. There, there is a actually. I'm going to be. I'm saying. I said I'm going to be flying my least favorite airplane in the sky. But the positive reason for that, is, and I'm actually was looking at some of the the trips that they have out there, and I kind of get a, got a little excited because I saw Seattle and Anchorage on there. Like, ooh, that sounds like there kind of fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, some places I've never been, and that's the West Coast. I've have very little. little Limited exposure, but the Seattle—you uh, hey, can't go to Seattle, mate. There's nowhere left to park your airplane. <laughs> oh, well, that's true. <laughs> there is no no place, but you know, places uh-huh. like like Seattle or Portland, Oregon, or San Francisco. Hi, Fred. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, L.A., yeah. L.A., cool. San Diego. I mean, all, all these places—they're oh, they, all great destinations. Yeah, I haven't been to most of those places. Yeah, well, I've been there once in my career as a pilot, and once uh, as a tourist, so a few times as a tourist. But you know, some of these great places that uh, I haven't had, and, and one of the biggest reasons why I did what I did, and the way I did it, and the way I constructed my bid was because I'm at the point in my career that if I'm going to have to be back as a first officer, uh, I want to be as senior as I can with some options in what I get to fly. So I kind of constructed my bid that way, and it was really a toss-up uh, on three different airplane types. It was between the 7-3. Well, let me rephrase that. It was between the Airbus, which my, the, the baby bus, the 319, 320, 321, which is all one category at ACME. Um, Based on seniority, I bid that first on each individual um, breakdown. So basically, I did as long as I'm in the top thirty percent, I did Airbus seven three. Uh, that at that point, I left off the seven five seven six because what I don't didn't want to do is go back to another aircraft that's rapidly looking at a uh, retirement coming forward, and you know I want to really just go through one maybe two long schools and preferably one long school. Uh, and when I say long school, I mean a full training program on an airplane for the rest of my career. So I went with uh, building that uh, in a way that it was the Airbus, then the 7.3 on 30 percentile. Then at 40 percentile, I did the Airbus 7.3 and uh, in 7.5, category. I don't need to go through the rest of them. But my first pre- preferences were, were a uh, captain in any seat in Atlanta. Well, I couldn't hold any seat in the system as a captain because we went back that far. So uh, I am going to be 20, I think it's 26-ish percent on the 737 in the right seat. And I would have been about 40, 41 percent, a couple different programs showing a different percentage. Uh, you know, that gives you a rough percentage. Uh, so it popped on the 737 because I'm going to be very senior or relatively senior. And once you get into the top 25-ish percent on any aircraft, the quality of life is really good. You can really start picking the trips, uh, kind of what Jeff's done his whole career. Um, you know, 17 of my 19 years at this point has been as a first officer. I've only only been a captain a little over two years in my entire career. So I didn't, you know, don't want to go back to being an FO, but, you know, I, I get something to look forward to. And that's being something that I haven't been in my entire career that's senior and something else. I'm going to be flying to destinations and have control of it for the most part uh, as a senior first officer to destinations I've never been to. 
just nice. a point of order. Um, I've only been able to pick my own trips in the last 10, 12 years, <laughs> not, <laughs> not my whole career. <laughs> so I've never I was going to say, my trips didn't, ever. didn't Captain Jeff uh, really not relish the thought of moving to the, the mad dog back in the. Yeah. No, the yeah, that was yeah. another point I was going to make is that, that, you know, you have to look at us at the silver lining because when I, I was just very distraught that the only thing that I could fly captain on in Atlanta when I got bumped off the 7-2 was the Mad Dog. Did not want to fly this airplane. Didn't fly it as a co-pilot. Never intended to fly it. And guess what? Turned out that it was one of the best airplanes. Well, I I enjoyed flying it for those 18 years. Let's just put it that way. And well, I, I can imagine it'd be a little bit daunting, you know, going to the left seat of an airplane you've never flown before, you know, because uh, as, as an FO, I mean... I've flown every airplane that I've, I mean, I've only been on the left seat of the seven, six, but I mean, I've before I was a captain on it before and I was an FO on it for many years. And, you know, so I know the little, you know, ins and outs and idiosyncrasies and, you know, combine that with the knowledge of the overall operation, mm-hmm. you'll go in, you know, you're, you're, you're sitting pretty when, when it comes time to, you know, sign the flight release, because you know how things are both operationally, technically and, 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 and all else, but not knowing the jet, no, not being familiar with the ins and outs of the jet, how it flies and all that. Uh, I don't know. It's, that's, uh, that's, yeah, you know, I wasn't, uh, you know, that's why I picked the seven two to be the first airplane that I checked out as a captain. Cause I'd flown flight engineer on it for a year and a half and mm-hmm. seven years as a first officer. So yeah, I know I feel exactly the same way, but um, I really didn't have any other choice other than, you know, trying to commute somewhere to fly captain on something other than the, you know, pretty much any other airplane I would have flown would have been something I'd never flown before. So well, it was like, right. that's, that was the only situation I had. And I just assumed that, uh, the people that I'm flying with were fully trained and knew what they were doing and, and it's worked out so far. <laughs> Most everybody seemed to know what they're doing over there. So it's good. Well, and, and truth, truth be told, the primary reason, the one and only reason I don't want to fly the 737 and I'd rather be on the Airbus simply put is I'm a big guy my shoulders I wear a 52 to 54 inch jacket so guys no sizes of jackets uh, generally most people are in the 46 44 to 48 range at the most um, when I sit down in the cockpit in the 737 where the iPad sits and I've tried this numerous times um, where the iPad sits, cuts right into my arm, no matter which way I put it. So I am going to be very uncomfortable. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to get over it, obviously. But it, it, between the two, I'd much rather be on the Airbus. But I get what you're saying. I mean, going from an aircraft that you don't know, uh, and, and of course, you know, I talked about this in great length when I first upgraded to Captain on the Mad Dog, and that is I moved 36 inches, and I knew the airplane, so I didn't have to worry about that piece. I just had to learn to be a captain, and that made my transition to the left seat, uh, even though it was daunting and challenging, much easier. So that's kind of why I did the whole seniority bidding anyways, because the, it was has been trending that the 737 at Acme was going junior anyways. So my thought process is, okay, well, everybody's going to the Airbus because everybody loves it, and, you know, it's a gloomy oh. Yeah, I know. I hate to say that, but it's going senior because of that reason. Dick uh, just perked up. <laughs> I know, right? Dick just perked up. What? At our airline, it's, it's going very senior because everybody's enjoying it, and, and it's doing some good flying, and it's a roomy flight deck. But what I looked at is the long term, and that is, again, going back to I really would prefer only to do one more long school 
and there are only two aircraft that I can think of that are going to be in the in the in the in the Acme fleet plan that are now that are uh, domestic equipment because I'd never really want to fly international, and that's the seven three and the baby Airbus. And the 7.3 going junior, so I'm looking down the road that if, okay, in a displacement, another bid that comes out, because we have all these retirements, they're not going to train anyways. I heard that interesting information yesterday, um, that in 12 to 18 months, if I get another opportunity to upgrade, um, the most junior airplane most likely would be either the 717, which I'm very familiar with, uh, you know, the 88 product, because it's very similar aircraft. Even though it says Boeing, it's really not or the 7.3 will be the junior aircraft. So my quality of life will always be much better going forward. And as I'm getting closer to retirement, you know, as I said, 17 of 19 years have been an FO. So I don't have, I have some years left, but I'm getting close to that point that, um, you know, once I go through training, I'm not going to want to do anything else. Kind of like what, what Jeff's going through right now. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you get to Alaska, ask Steffi about her, uh, her uh, breakfast digs. Yeah, it's good stuff. Anchorage. Mm-hmm. Great, great stuff. Uh, and in the airplane itself, I man, I keep telling you, it's, it's, I understand. It's like, yeah, it blows. But I've, I've, I've been, I've been explaining this to the non aviation folks out there. And if you don't understand aviation as much, uh, you know, maybe cockpit size doesn't, isn't ringing a bell. Uh, in the United States, we have a, 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 a F 150, which is a pickup truck, which is a very, very roomy uh, um, cabin. That, you know, when you sit there and you drive, you have lots of room, lots of elbow room, and you can move all around, or you can get into a Ford Escort or a mm-hmm. Toyota Camry. Not, I mean, a Toyota, not a Camry. Uh, what's the, the, the Toyota? The Corolla? The Yaris? Yeah, like a Corolla. Get into a Toyota Corolla. Something really tiny like that. That's kind of like what it's for a 737. Then you see a big guy like me that's six foot uh, and, you know, super big shoulders. And, you know, I do work out. Some, it's not necessarily the belly size as much as just my overall stocky body that uh, is, is is trying to get into that little tiny space. So that's that's kind of where I'm going with it. And that's mm-hmm. that's really the only reason why um, I didn't want to go to the 7.3. But seniority is seniority. That's Absolutely. the end of the conversation. Absolutely. Well, so enough about well, me. You I'm, your, I'm, your, I'm your Boeing guy. So, you know, I think just, just hit me up. Yeah, well, I've had uh, um, um, the other Colonel Jeff has has offered uh, information. Yeah, My even best buddy, who actually I went to college with, fraternity brothers with, and he is an instructor at uh, Colonel Jeff's airline. He taught that airplane for 14 years um, and now is on a 777 teaching it. But he taught that, the the baby bus, and now is on a 777. So, and he is a, when you say aviation nerd, uh, he's been one ever since I've known him, and he has almost every manual ever printed by any airline ever for nice. every air, airplane. He had he know he, this guy has he, he put all of us to shame. I hate to say it, nice. <laughs> really, and he's still instructing. So yeah, that's, that's, like that's, that's good that's Yeah, absolutely. That's the beautiful part about aviation. You know, there's there's always so what what drives me to be better is knowing that there's someone out there that's going to be better than you always. You know, and it's that's that it's that uh, is that search for for uh, for uh, perfection perfection that keeps you that 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 drives you. But uh, you know, just going back to the the airplane itself, man, it's just the simplicity of the systems. First thing when you sit down, I've never flown a seven three, but it's the same uh, the same LCDs as the triple seven that you know they're familiar with. Uh, You're just going to you know like you're 
the, the just the size of those screens can be like wow it's so easy to read and the, the, the when when the sun hits the lcds you don't have that bad contrast that crts have and just the system is just the automation so easy and it's just very very um conducive to make it to making the, the the flight as easy as possible so why no auto packs though or auto or why why no auto electric well, because the, the seven three, the seven three, you have to you have to keep in mind the seven three. The way that the way that Boeing makes an airplane enticeable to airlines is by is by keeping it at the at the at the I guess a um, a level of of automation as close to the original. So that's why that's why it went <laughs> built in the nineteen what sixties. Here's the thing. I mean, when, when the seven three came out, when the new seven threes came out, and I'm talking, you know, the 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 three hundreds and four hundreds, the new seven threes um, uh, that U.S. Airways actually got um, were right after the Southwest ones. You you had a you had a flight management system, you know, two control display units, and you know, a flight management computer, and and, and you know, upgraded uh, mud control panel and all that stuff. But you still had the old steam gauges. And the reason behind that was, you know, well, Southwest was the biggest customer and they needed a common type. And so that's how they did it. And so the, the way the way the progression of the systems has gone is has been to just kind of keep it at the common denominator, the ba- that basic denominator. Same as same, same with the 747. You know, the, 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 the Dash 8 came out and everybody thought it was going to be, a, you know, a 787 type jet. And that's what everyone was looking forward to. But you have folks uh, over at an airline in Luxembourg that wanted things a certain way, and they were the launch customer, and they're you know they bought a ton of them, and so they had you know they kind of swayed the they kind of swayed the, uh, the 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 design a little bit there, and they and and now the the, the Dash Eight is a common type with the seven forty seven Dash four hundred, and even having they got they went to the lengths of actually having to modify the way the wing works during the flare to make it land like a 400 does so that it can be in fact a, a common type among other things so that's kind of the, the the Boeing philosophy but but it's just it's just simple it's easy so yeah it's it's going to be a breeze for you man just remember Dana when that configuration warning goes off you might want to check the packs yeah, something. I have to check something. Yeah, <laughs> it's the same horn. Yeah, if you're, if, if you're getting a little sleepy, it's not because you had a bad night's sleep, probably. Yeah, it's not exactly. Yeah, because well, you out. In, in yeah. the tra- on the training, you know, we're kind of talking about the training aspect and getting a couple comments in in the chat room here about they'll become a, an expert. Yes, I used to be a ground school instructor, so I tend to hold myself to a much higher standard on knowing uh, equipment, especially the systems. Um, but I don't know when we're supposed to find out maybe later this week or early next week when I'll be going to training, but it could be as soon as July, but realistic where I sit in seniority, it may not be until the fall or even into the winter. I don't know, but, uh, yeah, I might be uh, sitting around waiting for this to happen. In the meantime, I will, uh, you know, get, try to get my hands on some of the training material. I already have the, the gouge stuff and, and starting to get into the systems to understand, um, how this airplane works and operates because I don't want to be the village idiot when I show up. No, nah, man, you won't. You'll be breeze for you. Well, let's stay with you, Rick. Uh, how oh. have you been and what have you been up to? I've been doing good, just uh, flying crisscrossing this beautiful country of ours. Um, a little different for me being uh, going from flying around the world to just flying in the you know continental U.S. over over the forty eight states here. Uh, did a couple of, uh, transcons since to, uh, Portland and back and then down to Houston. That was nice. And then, uh, 
back up towards Cincy and then, uh, I don't know, ended up in Tampa somehow. Um, so it's just nice. Just, just flying around here. I, I'm, I'm loving the, you know, two and a half hour um, legs. It's just great. You know, just, you just sit down, get the top of climb. That's a half hour fly for about an hour. Then you start seeing the top of descent, little point there, show up in the ND. You're like, wow. All righty. And then, uh, you find yourself getting natives and, uh, standing for landing performance and briefing. And then a half hour later, you're on the ground. It's like, well, well that was nice. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the wakeups have been a little, little crazy. Um, life of a, life of a freighter. Um, today, uh, I had a, uh, a, a two thirty wake up, but I, I like, I like getting up a couple of minutes earlier uh, before that. Cause I like going through the paperwork and I like working on my little post-it note. I, I write all my data there and go over the weather and the aircraft uh, status and maintenance and, talk to the dispatcher if I have to, stuff like that. Um, but it's been a couple of early, early, early goes for me. But I mean, as long as, you know, once again, in the, in the rhythm of things, it's really no problem. I've been uh, flying with this fantastic FO the last couple of trips from uh, Nairobi out in Kenya. Yeah. Sure. Talking about um, the uh, East Africa Flying Club and used to fly down there. And then uh, he's about the same age as me. He's, uh, well, I'm 39, he's 42. And uh, we were talking about how um after the after 9-11 you know i ended up in south america and he actually went over to tanzania and flew a q400 down there and flew all over africa so we you know haven't flown to a lot of the same places down in africa we really have a lot to talk about really really cool guy very thorough very knowledgeable you know good stick as well so it feels nice when when your fo knows what the hell he's doing yeah always a good thing yeah all right. Um, anything else before we move on to the next customer? Yeah. All right. All good. Nick, anything new in your world? No, not really. I'm just working away at uh, publishing some plain tales, which uh, are now available on the website. And uh, if you've set up your RSS feed, then they'll be appearing in your podcatcher of choice. So I'm almost caught up with those. There are a couple of the Ian Palmer interviews to put up, and uh, uh, that'll be that. I'll be right up to date. So thank you very much for making those available, Jeff. Uh, And I've already got uh, next week's written, uh, and I'm trying to go on a slightly lighter theme, uh, more amusing perhaps, than uh, the rather deep conversation I was having uh, with Ian Palmer. Um, so uh, that's all pretty good. Um, as regards personal life, uh, the lockdown is slowly being eased here in the United Kingdom, but there's not much happening yet. Uh, you know, no restaurants, no bars, no no places like that open. And uh, really, uh, unless you um, you absolutely have to, they're still asking you to uh, isolate as much as possible. So, well, you're always isolating yourself and keeping social distancing, but not going out unnecessarily. So doing my best to uh, keep to that. Um, oh, that's it. Life's pretty good. Uh, the lovely warm spring we started off with has gone a bit dreary, but I'm sure that won't last long. That's good. I hope not. Um I, here in Georgia, that was one of the first uh, early states anyway here in the United States to start opening things back up. And last night I was sitting at a bar eating a slice of pizza and drinking a beer. So nice. um, Social distancing, of course, six feet apart from the Mm -hmm. next person at the bar. But uh, it felt good to be back and talk to people. It's kind of neat. So uh, 
you're saying, Steph? How have you been? Oh, I've been I've been good. Um, I don't have a whole lot of updates. Um, still, just really enjoying the opportunity to continue to learn more about the skydiving operations, which I talked about previously. So that's continued last weekend, and looks like I'll get some more opportunity this weekend. Um, work wise has been a strange week. I'm not going to get into. Um, anything political certainly here, but it's been a little bit of a rough go in some big cities around the country. And our office location is not far from the center of um, the city here in, in Charlotte. So I think it's been um, a little discouraging for people to travel to our office um, because we've had very, very light schedules this week in the office. A lot of people not showing up, which I understand. And that's, that's fine. Um, I was actually busier today doing my, uh, this is my work from home day doing telemedicine stuff than I've been in the office all week, which has been a little bit crazy, but um, you know, trying to use that time wisely otherwise and, and um, take care of stuff around the house and um, yeah. And let's see what else. I think I mentioned last week that my brother was in town. It was his birthday on Monday, um, but we celebrated it on Sunday, went out to, to dinner, um, sat outside at a restaurant. I still think that's kind of the better option if it's available. And um, I sent him home on Monday um, to get to Salt Lake. He had to go via Miami and Dallas because there's no direct flights right now. So, but he was okay with it. It's all good. Got to see a lot of different places. Yeah, I got a little tour of the country for, for yeah. his birthday. Probably doesn't have the same wanderlust that you have, Steph. But not not really. Yeah. I mean, for certain destinations, yes, but yeah. I, I wouldn't mind just flying around for a while if I had nothing better to do for the day. But hey, well, you speak- tell me he would he wouldn't like Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of nothing having not nothing better to do. I, I like Detroit. I've been Detroit. <laughs> yeah, Detroit's nice. As I said, uh, speaking of nothing else better to do, that's pretty much my situation. <laughs> so, hey, Nick, I was reading this article uh, before the show started that the um, uh, UK has some kind of a 14-day um, quarantine requirement or something. And I'm thinking, hmm, a couple of weeks yeah, in uh, the hasn't UK. Come in, hasn't come <laughs> in yet, but it'll be one of the measures. Uh, um, I'm, I'm, it may not be enforced for every country, but those with a, a particularly high level of uh, the virus, uh, I think that's going to be a requirement because what's the point of importing people uh, who might be carrying it when you it's reducing here? I can understand it's dreadful for the industry. It makes uh, you know any thought of uh, holiday traffic or, in fact, almost any airline travel completely impractical. So the airlines and the airports are trying to fight it, but uh, I, well, I think quite honestly, I think can't see them winning. I think you've missed my point completely. I'm, I'm oh, trying sorry. to invite myself to uh, your place for a couple of weeks. <laughs> he wants to quarantine <laughs> at your house for two weeks. <laughs> oh, well, you can put my address. Yeah, I've got a, there's something that says garden shed in the back. You can have that if you want. <laughs> Thanks. Come on over, man. Yeah, that's all right. I'll wait until things have settled, I guess, a little bit more and find somebody well, that really not a lot wants to do is the problem. Anyway, uh, looks like I'm going to be. Yeah, I think his, he could just probably raid your uh, your beer fridge and you know, yeah, well, enjoy that nice that. English yeah. sunshine. Oh, well, it'll be back. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you can go to jump, Pebbly jump Beach. On yeah, you can go the to Pebbly the beach. beach. Mm. <laughs> well, now that I'm thinking about it a little bit more, forget it. Um, <laughs> hey, Nick, I have nothing going on. Maybe I can come over and spend a couple weeks with you. Oh, uh, yeah, why not? It's good. So, uh, yes, I ended up, uh, getting displaced as well, but, uh, I was displaced to the airplane that I thought I'd be, um, 
and uh, the 717, which is, of course, another Mad Dog, really. I mean, all this all this news about the Mad Dogs going away, well, not so fast. The uh, Boeing 717 is actually an MD-95, MD, Mad Dog. There you go. So uh, I'll get to uh, learn about that airplane and get trained on it. I have a short course uh, for those who are, are already have DC-9 type ratings, as I do and Dana has. Uh, and remember, the uh, the MD-88 is the DC-9-88, the MD-90 is the DC-9-90, and the Boeing 717 is the MD-95, uh, or no, excuse me, the DC-9-95. So uh, a lot of similarities to uh, what I'm already flying, so it's a short course. I think four simulators total, a couple of, uh, of those fixed base or whatever you call them, the flight trainers that aren't uh, full simulators the first couple of days. And then the last four days are the regular full motion simulators. And then I get my blessing and then I don't even think I have to do anything on the line. I think I'm pretty much good to go. I think you get a uh, one trip on OE. Okay. Maybe so. I don't know. I think so. Um, Yeah. And so because there were so many pilots affected by this uh, displacement, um, there are, I think about 60 some odd people ahead of me in line to be trained on it. Now it's probably going to be a little bit quicker on for me than it will be for Dana because we have that short course. And a lot of the people I think that are a lot of the people that were captain on the 88 are moving over to the 717. Most of those people that need to be trained that are ahead of me. So I think it's probably going to be half the time that I'm off or that Dana is going to be off, but it's probably still going to be two or three months. I'm guessing. So we'll see. We're going to find out, as Dana mentioned, uh, hopefully by the end of this week or perhaps uh, sometime next week. So we'll let you know that then. And in the meantime, no airplane to fly. Dana doesn't either. <laughs> we, you know, you look at the, it's funny. You go in there and you look at open time and trip coverage and everything else. And there's just like nothing because there are no airplanes to fly. So it's an interesting existence, but we are on reserve. <laughs> I'm thinking like, I guess I need to check to see if I'm on short call, but no, I'm, I'm on long call and uh, very, 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 very long call, I guess. So they, they uh, will, they will let you know if you're on short call. Yeah. Okay. Is that the way it works? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Last time I was on reserve was nearly 20 years ago. So anyway, um, and that's pretty much it. Not a lot going on. So I'm, I guess I'm in that same boat with, uh, with Nick and Dana, uh, as far as getting caught up, got nothing. <laughs> so, oh, I am flying, or not flying, singing a little bit more now um, at uh, our churches opened up and uh, to limited um, capacity. And I'm back um, involved in three separate masses over the weekend. So that's nice to be able to, we don't, we're not singing very much. But at least we're singing something. So that's something. And uh, that's it. You're all caught up. And I was looking through the the Twitters, the Sochmeads, and um, there, you know, there's a lot of stuff on the Sochmeads uh, the last week or so uh, regarding the uh, the sunset of the uh, MD88, MD90, and uh, a podcast named uh, Let's see. The the next trip with Doug and Drew uh, did their last episode uh, is episode number 27, Mad Dog Madness. 
It's all about Doug's excellent MD-80 adventure, but we'll take some time to Marvel and they talk about some other things. SpaceX launch. Was it like and, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure? I, it, n- no, nothing like it at all. <laughs> well, yeah, instead of going to a fun booth, they go on an MD-80. MD-80, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll have a link to their show in the show notes, but uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about was uh, – uh, one of them has said something about the, uh, uh, the the Mad Dog having square windows, and I'm thinking, uh, huh? Uh, I think that they had some issues with square windows back in the in the day in the in the fifties. Didn't yeah, did yeah. the uh, didn't the comet? Uh, yeah, the Haviland comet, yes, the comet days, and yeah, uh, that actually that turned out to be a bit of a um, a furth. The the windows were actually constructed extremely strongly because De Havilland knew that. Uh, those corners might be a, a problem. So mm-hmm. he, he tested and and built them extremely strongly. But uh, sadly, uh, the ADF uh, window in the top of the fuselage wasn't given the same treatment because oh. it was an aerial port, but it was constructed in the same way. And that's where most of the um, fatigue uh, striations came from, the fatigue cracks. Yeah. Well, as you know, Delta P doesn't discriminate. No, exactly right. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, since that point where they started uh, making their windows more round or oval, um, all aircraft manufacturers have. Now, maybe it looks more rectangular-ish than a lot of other windows out there, but uh, they're, trust me, they're not square. Um, and then he also had a question about the wing landing lights and uh, wasn't sure if, you know, all the mad dogs had them. And uh, turns out that any airplane... That has DC-9 in their designation, like the original DC-9, all all the way up to and including the MD-95 slash Boeing 717, 8890s, 82s, 83s, all those had those wing landing lights out there. Are those uh, speed restricted? No, they're no. not. Really? No. No, but, not at all. Actually, I actually call them light speed brakes. Uh, yeah, they, I don't really notice much difference in using them. I guess there's a negligible um, increase. Well, you have to turn them on, Jeff. You don't just put them out. <laughs> oh, when you actually turn them on, coming out of the front, the light kind of helps. slows you down. Yeah, ah, exactly right. Darn it, yeah. I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> but uh, they, there is a system that if you lose an engine, automatically retracts them. So there is some drag associated with them. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, so if you lose an engine on landing, then you can't see anything. Yeah. You don't want it. Yeah. You don't want to, <laughs> yeah. The runway. You, do it the dark. you <laughs> just really don't want to see it. Now we have other, we have other landing lights as well. So not just the way. Yeah. It must have, it looks like a bloody Christmas tree, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> a beautiful always, Christmas tree. Them, you can always sell a, a DC product on final. Yep. Oh, absolutely. As I, and I love it. How the, uh, how the lights are uh, up on the glare shield here. It's just so easy to. Mm-hmm. Are, are are all uh, all uh, MD products like that? Like the, even the even the ninety five? I'm not sure about the ninety five. I'm gonna find well, out. He will know soon. Yeah, no, Bay will have messed it up. Uh, I yeah, uh, I don't know. We'll see. I think I was still designed by the MD boys and girls, mm-hmm. um, and built by them. Boeing just slapped their name on it. That's all. <laughs> um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, they bought the company, so you know they had every right hey. to. Um, it's mine now. I own this. Yeah, exactly. now it was now a Boeing seven seven. I made this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey Jeff, we need we, what we need to do is we get need to get a fund going so we can go ahead and buy a MD eighty so that we have it for our personal airplane. 
There you go. Don't we have can them. still fly it and, and do two tours, with, air show tours with it and everything. Contrary to what uh, Pilot Pip uh, always asserts, we do not have that much money in the coffee fund at this point. <laughs> yeah. Just get a movement going. Yeah. Well, I get um, one of those every day. When uh, you... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you talk about movement center, I get really worried. <laughs> You're talking to two men in their sixties, so you know. Oh yeah, careful. Well, I haven't gotten it to that point in my life. Uh, but anyway, never trust the, he trying to tell me you never trust a fat. <laughs> uh, I'm not, not going to try to tell you anything, man. Okay. Um, also, I came across something on the social media as well. That I thought that uh, the community might be interested in, especially if you're in one of those places that's still locked down. And of course, we know that um, most places are not doing air shows. I don't know if we'll have any this year. Well, I guess Reno is probably going to be doing the air shows. Is that right? I think I, I heard something I about that from uh, Armando. Anyway, um, regardless, uh, there, there is an organization and I believe they're in the UK and, uh, it's called Aerobility, uh, here, let me see. I'm going to try to share the screen here and put that up there so people can look at something. Um, the armchair air show 2020, and you can view on their YouTube channel and it is, uh, let's see. Aerobility is an organization, a charity, uh, that, um, uh, offers the gift of flight to anyone with any disability. And uh, I think we've talked about them before in the past, talking about some of the disabled pilots, uh, the young lady that uh, has no arms and uh, is flying, I think, uh, involved in this organization as well. Um, so the Armchair Air Show 2020 is Saturday, 20th of June. The thing that I can't figure out, and maybe it's just because I'm just not smart enough to figure this out, it says the from 1400 to 1800 it doesn't have any time zone anywhere that i can find on their webpage or their youtube channel uh, i'm assuming it's the uh, british summer time bst well they do have a countdown going on okay. so i well, guess you could do the math for me that no do do the math for me steph while we we'll continue days, to talk 16 hours 6 minutes okay right now right. it's uh, what time over there um, Nine o'clock. that would make it midnight wouldn't it right mm mm-hmm. mhm and it would make so. it like 7 o'clock um, our time, 1900 Eastern Daylight. Uh, yeah, it's like 1 o'clock in the morning, I think, your time or something like that, Nick. And I'm, I'm thinking of the well, clock. it's 9 o'clock it? British summertime now, just coming up to. So. Or maybe the, maybe the uh, countdown is just for the date, Okay, not the actual time. Maybe so. Okay. Well, that would make me feel better, I guess. <laughs> just like, why can't I figure this out? Because that clock is not working out to yeah because the countdown is seems, going to yeah <laughs> maybe it's like midnight of uh the the 20th of june that makes sense that's midnight probably what it is the and then it'll start at two o'clock yeah but is it two o'clock i don't know maybe somebody who knows uh out there listening might know for sure exactly when on the 20th of june i mean what time zone that is i'm just, again i'm just going to have to conclude that that's uh in the uk because it looks like it's anyway Enough that have had a little um, uh, teaser. They have a little teaser uh, YouTube video. And uh, let me play a little bit of that for you, audio only. Here we go. With the Armchair Air Show, one of the unique uh, experiences that you'll have is to go into the cockpit uh, with Mike 
and to actually understand what it takes to fly one of these displays and to get a unique perspective from a pilot's point of view. So, um, so Mike, talk us through it. Yeah, so this is us uh, arriving into a, the arrival loop. So we're pulling up, we put flying pyramid. We actually change formation as we're in the loop now. Starting at about 200 miles an hour, we reach the top of the loop at about 1,200 feet. We've changed formation. You can now see on the right hand side. Okay, so that is uh, the discussion from Mike. I think that's Mike Ling. I think uh, the he's part of the Blades, uh, which, I, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, is uh, composed of X Red Arrow display demonstration pilots is that correct uh, nick no i don't know oh, okay. uh, ian ian photographs them quite a lot uh, i think they ian are black i think that uh, uh yeah i wouldn't think surprise me i think that the uh, the guy there uh, was a very long time member of the um of the red arrows isn't and, and now the um i'm not sure if he's a lead or not of the the blades but anyway this air show is going to have uh, let's see aircraft can Firm so far include the SR-71 Blackbird, Solar Impulse, F-35, F-104, F-18, Vulcan, Spitfire, Chinook, Concord, the Blades, and the Red Arrows. So looks like something fun to do and uh, hang out with a bunch of like-minded uh, aviation geeks and see an air show. It's not quite the same as being there and with your head and neck kicked back to watch these airplanes going by and smelling it and hearing it, but it might be interesting. I'm going to check it out. So It might be, yeah, and you're never going to see Concord for real again, so no. that could be a great part of it. Yeah. So, there you go. Uh, on a YouTube channel near you on the 20th of June. And I think that is all I had to talk about. Yeah. All right. With that, I think now it would be a good time to get on with our coffee fund. It's that time of the show where we talk about all these fine folks who Johnny, how much more coffee? Sure thing. contribute to our coffee fund. And coffee. the coffee fund is used to fund the all the ongoing cost of running the show week to week and uh, equipment that we purchase and use and also for meetups which we haven't had a lot of in the recent past but we're hoping to kick that up again soon and a couple of different ways to do it one is the classic method and since the last episode we have had several many of them who are patrons uh, via patreon uh, let's see we have randy ward cindy filco robert simmons vigner Wannison, Jason Kuntz, Carl Hude, Hude, maybe, uh, Ian Griffin, Alistair Kerr, Manuel Vaquero, Alan Loveday, and Johns Philip Seidel. Oh, still some more. David Lee and Randolph Ackerman. Again, he's got a recurring payment going on. So thank you all uh, for using the classic method of the uh, coffee fund. What we like to call it, yeah, Coffee Fun Classic Method. Also, patrons, uh, one of our patrons, Nico Rager, uh, increased his pledge by 60%. He was already a new, I mean, a, an executive producer, but now he's even a better one. He's uh, bumped it up uh, 60%. So thank you very much, Nico, for that. We do appreciate you. We appreciate everyone who's part of the Coffee Fund, and you all should consider joining them. You'll be glad you did, and we will too. Incoming message. 
Okay, let's start off with um, some feedback uh, re- from Brent. And he says, hello, APG crew. As a longtime fan of aviation living here in Kamloops, BC, where aviation isn't that prominent at our seven or eight dash eight flights per day airport, it's always a treat when an aerobatic team such as the Canadian Snowbirds come to town. Sunday, May 17th was a sad day in Kamloops after a snowbird crashed into a residential neighborhood shortly after takeoff, killing passenger Captain Jennifer Casey and injuring the pilot Captain Rick McDougall. After watching the snowbirds perform in my hometown of Kamloops since my early childhood, back when we still held annual air shows here, it was a real treat last week to see them come through on their cross-Canada tour meant to help uh, boost public morale during the COVID-19 crisis. The fact that this crash also happened here in my hometown of Kamloops weighs heavy on my heart. In the spirit of all our love for aviation, my family and I have made a small donation to the APG Coffee Fund. Actually, he made a generous donation. Thank you, uh, Brent. In memory of Captain Jennifer Casey, Public Affairs Officer for the Royal Canadian Air Force. Thank you for all the hard work that you, Captain Jeff, along with Dr. Steph, Captain Nick, Captain Dana, Captain Rick, and the rest of the team behind the scenes do every day to keep producing this great aviation podcast on a regular basis. And of course, he forgot the most important one, Captain Liz, uh, behind the scenes in the control room uh, in Toronto. Yes, Mm -hmm. as you were. I think she's CEO, actually. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, really. Mm-hmm. Cheers from Just Kamloops, BC, promotion. Canada. Brent Howell. So, thank you, Brent. Um, I, I mentioned Brent in last week's uh, show that he was one of the uh, Classic Fun contributors, and I had meant to cover his feedback in that show, but you know, that show was kind of a an odd one where we talked a lot about the uh, uh, the retirement of the, about uh, you. Yeah, all about me. That was all about <laughs> I'm me. Show. I'm like And. Um, uh, let's see. HR, this is really, that was really you, uh, generous of, of Brent and really good um, reason for doing so. We'll have to make sure those funds are put to appropriate good use. Yes. Yeah. Whatever that may be. All right. We'll figure it out. Okay. Uh, continuing on with uh, Jim. And also last week, um, we played the, he sent us two pieces of audio. And we played the first one, which was the uh, U.S. Air Force, USAF versus the RAF, Royal Air Force. And we said we'd play this one, the uh, second one on today's show. And uh, again, this is in response to a question in episode 425 concerning the differences between the RAF and U.S. Air Force. And also the uh, he said that... Um, it, it touched a nerve because these three years I spent, because the three years I spent in England as an EF-111 electronic warfare officer were a major highlight of his 20 years in the Air Force. Uh, let's see. So this is the one regarding the uh, USAF and the Royal Navy. So Jim Howard, a very humble, just a navigator. Hello, this is Jim, humble navigator in Texas. This is kind of part two of my comment on episode 525's question about the differences between the Royal Air Force and the U.S. Air Force. While I was in England, I did get to work some with the Royal Navy, and I think that's kind of a very interesting interesting culture difference, too, so I thought I'd tell you about it. I, we did often run against the Royal Navy ships. Now, I had nothing to do with flying Royal Navy. I, I only dealt with the boats. 
uh, we like to buzz them. They had a, a wonderful array of radars for our our jamming systems to at least look at. We were really not supposed to turn those on, and we mostly never did. And it was fun to buzz them, and I know those guys enjoyed it too. So it was a good time had by all whenever you caught one out there and could could you know bubble check him is what we would say. The first time I spent you know in person time with the Royal Navy was at a place called HMS Dryad, Her Majesty's Ship Dryad. Dryad was actually a little college base kind of thing. It wasn't a ship at all, but that's what they like to call it, and who am I to question that? It's a historic site now. I stayed in their officer's mess, which is a building called Southwick House. That's uh, spelled Southwick if you're an ignorant Texan, but they don't pronounce the W because of reasons. So in Southwick House, is a tourist attraction now because it was the headquarters of the uh, Eisenhower's D-Day staff in the weeks leading up to D-Day. And the uh, had a big map board with uh, wooden boats and diagrams and stuff all over it in their mess. Two-story thing, huge. They left it just like it was when Eisenhower left for D-Day. It's a tourist attraction now. You can go see it. Southwick House. The other thing I had there was a Batman which was not a caped crusader, but was this nice old gentleman who, when it was about time for me to wake up, would knock on my door and serve me a cup of tea. <laughs> How nice. I was always a fan of the British uh, Navy novels, uh, uh, Master and Commander, Horatio Horn, Hornblower, uh, Douglas Riemann novels. So it was a thrill to actually get to see the Royal Navy up close and personal. Royal Navy is the oldest continually operating uniformed military service in the world, and the U.S. Air Force is one of the youngest, and I kind of felt that at times. During the day, they are very prim and proper, not in a mean way, but they're, they're given to formality. When I first took their uh, NATO EW course, was shortly after my squadron participated in Operation El Dorado Canyon attack on Libya. Everyone wanted to talk about that. I really didn't know that much. I had helped prepare mission materials by operating this giant paper cutter, risking cutting off my thumb. I carefully calculated that I had to murder at least four Ewos in order for me to get a seat on that mission, and I just didn't have the heart to do that. I probably should have, though. On the last day of the course, we had what the Air Force would have called a dining-in, comma, a formal dinner, wearing our best formal mess dress uniforms and being on our best behavior, at least at first. Their officer's mess uh, dining room was interesting. You, As you walked in, there was a bunch of uh, pigeonholes for your napkins. That's what they were labeled. They didn't give me a napkin. I think I saw some of that in the RAF messes also. But like I say, I don't have a souvenir napkin from uh, HMS Dryad. Anyway, when you went in there, there were a big room with two or three rows of long tables with a chair, you know, lots of chairs in there. There was only probably at most 50 people in our uh, class and instructors and everybody was there. And I would have spread out a little bit, but apparently in the Royal Navy, you sit elbow to elbow, and I mean literally elbow to elbow. It didn't matter that there was hundreds of seats. You could have spread out, relaxed a little bit. No, elbow to elbow in there. This redneck kid from Texas who has no social graces is sitting elbow to elbow with officers of the oldest military service in the world. And they set me between, I think, 
a couple of admirals or commodores or I don't know, older guys with like a million gold stripes and a bunch of ribbons. And a big difference between the British military and American military is if you got even one ribbon, you've been somebody. Whereas <laughs> if you're a second lieutenant, you know, and been in two years, you look like you just won the Battle of the Bulge. They give you so many of these, you know, alive in 65, you were, you were there and showed up kind of ribbons. So... That was, I know, I knew then that was, they were special guys. And I sat right between them. It was a, a weird experience being between those two very nice older gentlemen. I was faced with more silverware, the fanciest plates that I had ever seen. There were lots of uh, forks and knives and what all on either side of this big beautiful plate and I knew enough to know you worked from the inside the outside in for the sides I had no idea what these uh, horizontal knives and forks and stuff across the top of the magnificent plate were for I had no clue never heard of that and I'm sitting next to two darn super navy guys Anyway, we had a nice conversation. I wasn't used to having a guy standing behind me. They had an enlisted guy or a steward or somebody who would, you know, he would serve you. He, they would, uh, every course, they would put it on your plate with a spoon or something. And then they'd come in from the other side to take it off when you were done with it. I learned later that I, I misused some of those uh, uh, upper horizontal uh, stuff because I thought like the spoon was for soup. But no, this upper stuff is for dessert. I didn't know that, and I probably disgraced the United States Air Force for all time in the eyes of the Navy. Anyway, it was, a, it was an interesting evening, and, and they did loosen up a little bit, you know, once the formalities were over. I'm running overtime, but I'll tell one real brief story. I got invited back several times to teach uh, about the F-111 after I graduated from the course, and I learned this. If they tell you that a member of the royal family is going to be in your Harrier pilot class, don't refer to him as Randy Andy. Really, that's not cool. Just just don't do that. This is Jim, redneck Texan, humble navigator. Thanks for listening. Oh, he, he added something to his name now. What what did he say? Um, what did he just say? Something about redneck, Texan. redneck Texan. Redneck Texan, <laughs> Jim, navigator. <laughs> Anyway, um, thanks, Jim. Did that um, bring back any memories of uh, dealing with folks in the Royal Navy, Nick? Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, a lot of the traditions of the Royal Air Force are based on the, the Navy. Um, so, yeah, uh, very much so. Um, they uh, are renowned for having extremely formal uh, events, and also some rather riotous ones as well, and particularly uh, Taranto Night, which is uh, the night they celebrate uh, the attack of the old uh, biplane string bags on the Italian Navy and managed to sink so many capital ships. It usually involves an enormous dessert uh, made out of jelly and custard and stuff uh, made to replicate the, the harbour. Um, and I think there's an awful lot of food gets thrown around. But the, <laughs> the one story I he heard that uh, just really tickled me was that uh, at a graduation of naval officers from uh, Dartmouth, I think is their uh, base where they uh, train all their officers, um, 
they as a prank had um but you know the the um the explosive used to uh, fire um other explosives it's like deck cord it goes very burns very fast you can use it to chop down trees and things anyway they they rig the top table with deck cord around the legs and uh tie that up to the the uh, little gavel that the uh the president uh, of the mess uh, raps when uh, he starts proceedings and uh, the, everyone stood up to, uh, as you do, you stand before you, uh, you take your seats. Uh, there's usually the gavel gets wrapped and someone says grace. Anyway, he banged this gavel and there was a huge explosion and all the <laughs> legs of this top table were cut uh, and the entire table with all the silverware and they just descended until it was lying on the ground about six inches tall and at which point um, the uh, or the proceedings just stopped. The, uh, the PMC and all the senior officers just walked out and that was the end of the evening. Um, they discovered afterwards that those tables were built from the timbers uh, oh, of no. a very famous warship. <laughs> um, oh no! Yeah, it was not a joke that went down very well. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh uh, yeah, attack the warship. It seemed like exactly. a good idea yeah. at the time. But they, they are famous for their hijinks, the navy, uh, and they have. Uh, you know, we have. We think we have traditions in the Royal Air Force. Uh, the Navy have traditions because they've been around so long, mm. and they just say no. The Air Force don't have traditions; they just have bad habits. <laughs> I really love the uh, the guy that would bring uh, the t- wake him up and bring the tea. Uh, what was he called again? <laughs> Batman. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. You can have bat women too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise referred to as the batting staff. Yes, in the oh. old days, of course, you, every, every officer had a batman um, who basically oh. looked after him and kept his clothes neat and tidy and uh, carried his luggage around and basically did for him. Um, you know, uh, and uh, nowadays uh, it's, it, you know, when I was in, they usually had a, a few of the batting staff per corridor. So they just, uh, you know, kept your rooms tidy. And uh, if you, Dropped a five or a two, they they do your washing for you, that sort of thing. Is that does that come from the term like batting used for like making a beds and stuff or what is that? I mean, haven't. I I've never looked it up. Actually, uh, I, I, I'm is it like b a t t i n g batting? Yes, yes. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Anyway, very cool. Well, thank you, Jim, for um, your audio feedback and comparing the U.S. Air Force to the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force. So. That was enlightening for sure. And do you want to know where the term bat comes from according to Wikipedia? Sure. Go for it. It says the British English term is derived from the obsolete bat, meaning pack saddle. That's oh. all it says. Pack. So saddle. they were the ones who carry uh the pack saddle with his officer's kit during a, oh. a campaign. There oh. you go. So it must be derived from that then, batting. Interesting. Very cool. Mm. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Steph and Wikipedia. (laughs) Stephopedia. Thank you, Google. Yeah. (laughs) Or Google. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Why don't we? We're very close to that time in the show. Uh, So we're going to make it that time in the show where we do the latest installment of The Plain Tales. And uh, I believe this is going to wrap it up for this amazing four part series, the uh, Ian Palmer interviews. And um, so I, I can't wait to uh, hear how this one goes. So why don't we all 
Take a listen. Here we go. The Ian Palmer Interviews Part 4. The old pilot's plain tales. Today, the final part of the Ian Palmer Interviews Part 4. Ian, lovely to see you again. Thanks very much uh, indeed for joining me for what I think will probably be our final interview. It's a a privilege. It's a real pleasure. Thanks, Nick. Just to remind you, uh, we finished up last time with you very much in the driving seat with regards to your drinking problem, but now facing another problem, possibly even more serious. Can you talk us through that? Of course. So, as as you said, the alcohol situation to all intents and purposes now was I have a program of recovery so and I'm enjoying it and life is life is good uh, however I then went on a trip to Barbados and I remember flying over thinking yeah all's good we're gonna go to uh, sit on the beach for a little while I think I had a simulator session coming up and I was gonna do a bit of studying uh, for that one and I remember flying the approach and it was uh, it's a beautiful day there as it usually is a few CBs around in the afternoon but you know nothing untowards landing on the easterly runway there we get onto the ILS and it felt a bit hot and clammy didn't feel particularly great didn't say anything and this was one of the first times I'd flown the Airbus A330 previous I'd do, I was making the transition from the A340 so we landed the aeroplane and as soon as we touched down i have to say it wasn't heavy landing but i saw two runways and also the world went at a sort of a slight angle and i naturally instinctively pressed the rudder pedal to go towards what i thought was the runway and i would the uh the my colleague at the time said whoa i have control took control of the aeroplane stopped the aeroplane pulled off the runway and uh, said are you okay and i was picked up the gas bag off the seat and I was violently sick and uh, it was so hot and clammy there when we landed as well as hot and clammy but it was so hot that uh, as we pulled on to stand um, my friend who I was flying with he was like gagging as well he was he was going to be sick because of the smell it was awful it was horrible so um, anyway we pulled on to stand we let the cabin crew know that or he let the cabin crew know that I wasn't very well it was decided to disembark the passengers first of all we then got um, some medical assistance and I was really 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 ill Um, I hung around had a glass of water and bit slowly over the course of about an hour it all started to I think the crew went to the hotel on the crew bus and myself and the captain stayed behind in a taxi I went in the taxi um, a little when I felt a bit better but he was really concerned about me and really looked after me and I went to the hotel and it was decided that they couldn't do really do anything for me but what had actually happened well they flew me I flew back to London I then went to see the my GP who said, well, that's, and it, I felt better by this stage. I, I, it kind of, st- the, I guess the double vision uh, hung around for a, you know, maybe a day or so, uh, and then it subsided. So I was fine by the time I got home. I saw my GP, he said, let's, I'm going to send you to a specialist. Now, what you have to bear in mind, this is the second time that I'd had an experience like this. Oh, really? Yeah, so what had happened was, it turns out that I had a 20 millimeter benign tumor 
in the midbrain. So anyone that knows about sort of geography of the head, if you like, um, this tumor was lying in the third ventricle, very close to the pineal gland. And I believe it was attached to the cerebellum. Uh, the back of the head. So whilst the tumour itself was a very, very nice tumour, in as much as it grew very slowly, they could contain it, you can monitor it, it's very difficult to get to because it required you to either go through the top of the head here, which if you went through the top of my head straight down between both sides of the brain, then the chances of getting epilepsy, I would have said, were probably a million percent. Um, so, of course, that's not really going to work for flying. Um, but happily, the tumour was below the ear line. So the good news there is that there was no chance of epilepsy. Um, so my, it's become a friend now, Professor Cruikshank, went into my head, through the back of my head, over the top of the cerebellum, and into the third ventricle that way, and removed... Um, well, basically the upshot of it was, is that I went for surgery to remove a brain tumour. Now, when I got my initial class one medical at the start of my flying career, um, this was also something that was identified then. Oh, really? So it was always something which could potentially come back. And I remember then that it was all came from the fact that I'd had an audiogram as part of the initial class one medical and I'd lost a little bit of hearing in my right ear. So I was sent for a, uh, basically seeing an ear, nose and throat specialist who said to me, uh, you need to have an MRI scan, but I think it's a bit of a waste of time because you're a drummer and it's gonna be noise induced hearing loss. So this was actually identified as something that perhaps I was born with. So this tumor was removed in 2000 before I went to college uh, to do my flying career as one of the requirements. And then it came back 15 years later and this flight uh, had been growing slowly, but it had grown to the point where the Basically, the optic, optic nerve was being distorted from the inside, which is where this double vision situation came from, or it had some effects on that. Now, I'm not a doctor. I don't know the ins and outs of it, but it was pretty um, pretty complicated to, to get to it. So I'd be eternally grateful to Professor Cruikshank, and I'm now not only on the recovery side of the alcoholic condition, but I'm now involved um, with people recovering from brain tumours and part of a brain tumour charity now which um, is very close to my um, close to my head so well that's brilliant now I gather that the operation went quite well but you actually had some complications after yeah so the the operation was uh, Professor Cruikshank said to me at the initial consultation he said Ian um, we can remove this now the, the clever thing here was that Professor Cruikshank is on the advisory board for the CAA and actually the DVLA for car licensing. But he's really involved with the CAA, so he had sort of allayed their fears and said, no, we can get to it, we can sort it out, don't worry about it. It's not a career-ending issue. This is a benign tumour that we can remove, and if all goes well, Ian can resume his flying career. So that was always the plan. But what he did say to me was that, Ian, you're in for turbulent water with this situation, and this is not something which is going to be pleasant it's not going to be a walk in the park and it really wasn't because I had to learn to walk again I had to learn to effectively write well my writing has changed as a result of this now some of the fine movement um, so but it's effectively now 
the upshot of that is that you know I've worked really hard. I had two years off work, one year to recover. And what I will say is that the initial surgery will still seem to go okay. I got to the point in hospital seven days after surgery where my brain started to swell and I started to lose my vision. I started to lose um, sense of touch. So all of my senses were breaking down here. So Professor Cruikshank came back very quickly, but the person who helped me initially was a respiratory physio. And that respiratory physio is Kirsty, who is now my fiance. Which is a lovely story. Wow, isn't um, that brilliant? Yeah, but I, I will say that there was no sort of uh, medical um, rules broken there in as much as I did contact her on Facebook four months after I left hospital. But um, anyway, we sort of went from there. So yeah, we now share a house on the outskirts of London, uh, which is which is fantastic. So Kirsty really helped me through that. And of course, that's why she never knew anything about my past regarding any sort of alcohol or, or issues there. But what this really does, it really, again, it really focused me on what's important in life. And I remember with my musical career, um, just before this surgery, I played a concert with one of my absolute heroes. And this person's name is Steve Gadd, who's one of the finest drummers in the world. He's probably the most influential drummer ever. Um, He's played with lots of uh, famous people. He plays regularly now with James Taylor and Eric Clapton. And I remember Steve saying to me, "Um, Ian, what's the most important thing? And I said, well, that's my flying career, because that's where it's my income. He said, no. So I thought, okay, it's probably a test here. It must be my musical career. That's my most important thing. He said, no, the most important thing is don't drink. Wow. The most important thing is don't drink. If you don't drink, everything will be fine. And how right he was, because he's, has, it's no secret, but he's been through a similar uh, path to me, a similar experience. So the brain surgery and the experience of losing my parents and what all that culminated in really does change your life and it's made me not just serious about life it's made me extremely serious about life in a very positive way i'm sure absolutely absolutely and i've gone on now to yeah, music is great. I can now return to my musical career. Oh, that's fantastic. In, Tell me more about that. Yeah, well, that's happening in and around my um, my flying. So I had a band which um, achieved um, a, a, some success, a band called The Ghosts, which was a band which I had put together and uh, was involved in the formation of that band. It was my idea. And that had a, a single which uh, went to number eight in the British charts, oh, which, was, uh, which was amazing. And um, most recently, I have um, been involved with recording music for films. And I've been involved with the soundtracking of uh, Tomb Raider. Um, so then I, this was a basically an album which has been recorded for Peter Connolly, who was the original writer of the Tomb Raider soundtracks. Um, So this is for the forthcoming uh, movie, but it's also a CD, and it's also, you can listen to it on Spotify. It's called uh, Tomb Tomb Raider, A Dark Angel Symphony. I think you'll be able to let us have use that little piece of that music for an intro and outro. Absolutely, that'd be a privilege. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, and uh, of course, there is a, the concert that you hold annually, uh, the world's greatest drummers. 
Yeah, the world's greatest drummer. And as you can see, this was a name that I came up with pre-coming into recovery. And I was certainly not alluding to myself as the world's greatest drummer. But (laughs) actually what it was is a tribute to somebody known as the world's greatest drummer or who was known as the world's greatest drummer. And that was Buddy Rich. So it's grown and grown, this concert. And we've done 10 of these concerts now over the last... well. 14, 13, 14 years. And everyone has been just just amazing. And what happens is we have a full big band, which is largely members of the BBC Radio Big Band. And we get together in a beautiful theatre. The last concert was held at the Derngate Theatre in Northampton, which holds around 900 people. And we had um, to this concert that I was referring to with Steve Gadd. That was probably my proudest moment on stage because Steve is someone that I've really looked up to since I was a child as a musician, since I was in my early teens at least. And uh, the opportunity to play alongside Steve was amazing. But then there's also my friend Steve White, who performs with us, who maybe some of the listeners or um, viewers will know Steve through his work with Paul Weller. And uh, he brother played with the um, band Oasis. Yes, certainly heard of him. Uh, so he's in a different style. Yeah, and then there was also Pete Cater, who's my dear friend, who actually, um, strangely enough, was born uh, about a mile away from where I was born in Sutton Coalfield. Oh, small and, world. But, yeah, but Pete has gone on to be um, probably the best-known big band drummer in, in Europe. And uh, he's in great demand as a teacher and as always we could say an educator and, uh, and a session musician. So your life is really good now. Life is very different to, you know, those dark days. And um, as I, you know, as I say then, you know, my, worst, my worst days sober are infinitely better than my best days drinking. <laughs> That's fantastic to hear. And your aviation career continues to blossom. Uh, you're in a yeah. training role now, aren't you? Yeah. So it's gone it's, it's gone from strength to strength. And this is not something that I've acti- actively pushed. But one of the things, you know, I guess this is the, the perfectionist streak that we all tend to have as aviators. But I had uh, applied for a job as what we call a training first officer. And it's, you know, it's lovely to stand in front of people, impart knowledge. And, and one of the things this really does is forces you to really know your subject as well. And also in the course of teaching, people ask you questions. So it does encourage you to, uh, to, to know more about what you're talking about. So from there, I was then offered the opportunity to become a, an Airbus A330 TRI tight rating instructor. So now I run simulator sessions for crews within my company. And it's just, again, that's a really privileged position because you're sitting behind pilots now watching them. And, you know, as we say, we're politely throwing the hand grenades in and letting them deal with it. And it's interesting to see the different approaches and that is the privileged seat where you can learn such a lot. And the last thing I did within my airline was I went for uh, what we call the CAP, the dreaded CAP, which stands for Command Assessment Process. And this was a, it's probably the most stressful, apart from the uh, instrument rating test, this is probably the most stressful um, stressful test that I've ever done and what happened was I showed up there they gave me uh, next to no fuel they put me in the simulator next to no fuel put me in a holding pattern 
near New York's Kennedy Airport, going round and round in circles, they told me that Kennedy Airport is closed until further notice. That didn't matter because the cabin crew, the person, rang up and said, um, Ian, um, we've got a problem. Uh, one of the passengers has gone into cardiac arrest. Uh, of course, this is all simulated, but this is the sort of pressure that they put you under. So I thought, flipping out, okay, so I'm watching this fuel drain away. So, okay, well, mayday, 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 let's go and fly. We've got to fly the approach. So we sort the airplane out. We're ready for the approach. But as soon as I requested for the first stage of flap, uh, we lost uh, on the Air, in Airbus, what we, we call it the green hydraulic system. So we lost all the fluid from the green hydraulic system, which then meant we had to break off the approach, have to go through all of the um, cockpit procedures. And it was really one of those. Are we going to succumb to the pressure of the fact that a passenger is having a heart attack and put another 200 passengers under risk? you know, with flying a gash approach? Or am I going to say no? I'm going to take the time and sort this out. Also mindful of the fact that the fuel is draining away very quickly. So anyway, the upshot was that, um, yeah, I flew an approach onto an inter relatively interwind runway onto one free left and ILS, and they stopped it just short of the touchdown point and said, yeah, congratulations. So from there on, they invite you to do an interview. The interview was... Um, well, that was pretty difficult as well. They ask you to go through a flight from A to B. You get on the aeroplane. This happens. What are you going to do? You have this uh, MEL uh, item to look at before you can dispatch. What are you going to do? Okay, so you have this item. You have some icing conditions. You taxi out. Okay, you're now below uh, the minimum fuel for takeoff. What are you going to do? Okay, you get airborne. You lose a navigation system. What are you going to do? So is that sort of scenario or several scenarios um but it's really testing so that was the last thing i did so i'm just you know hoping now at some point we get to do a, a command course and that will really be uh, the icing on the cake then to achieve my command to be a training pilot and i'll think look back and i'll think flipping out that was quite a rough bumpy road but the most important thing is we got there a rough, bumpy road would be one of the things I would attribute to your entire life. But uh, I can see in you the qualities that will make it uh, smooth for the future. So thank you very much indeed for uh, talking to us uh, today. I, I, I'm sure all our listeners would love to know how they can uh, find some more information about you uh, and particularly your music in. Uh, how could they do that? Absolutely. So, the, of course, being a musician, the social media thing is, is very active. So on Instagram, you can find me at Ian Palmer Drums. At Twitter, it's also Ian Palmer Drums. And I have a Facebook, um, two Facebook pages, my personal one, Ian Palmer Drums, and also an artist page, which is Ian Palmer Drummer. And of course, there's also my own website, uh, ianpalmer.com. Well, I'm sure they'll find something there uh, to uh, enjoy. And I really look forward to visiting them uh, all myself. Mm. Uh, so only remains for me to thank you very much indeed for giving us your time uh, and being so open and honest uh, with us. It's been a remarkable story. And of course, for myself and all the listeners, we wish you all the good fortune in the rest of your life, flying and music. Oh, thank you, Nick. It's my pleasure and it's great to speak to you. Thanks. Thanks a lot for asking me along. After my many years in the world of aviation, there aren't many people I have met who would be willing to open up their lives in the way that Ian has done. And in doing so, my regard and respect for him has done nothing but grow. Should anyone listening 
feel that they want to seek out Ian to ask him for his help or advice, then please contact him at ian at ianpalmer.com. Wow, bravo. What a great series of interviews, Nick. And, well, and bravo yeah, to Ian for, for opening yeah, up. As he, he he's the real hero of the story, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, what can you say? Because we all know how damaging it can be to have a, a poor reputation in our industry. Uh, it doesn't matter what the source is. Uh, and for him to be so open about his life and the problems he has and have the courage and the strength of character to face up to that, uh, I think is quite remarkable. And uh, I'm very sorry to say that uh, with the redundancies uh, uh, at uh, um, Ian's airline, uh, he's I don't think he's currently got a job. I'm um, hoping that will change. But, um, you know, it's difficult for everyone. He continues to uh, uh, play drums, of course. And uh, if you do uh, are interested, then he actually has a live um, Facebook, excuse me, video driving sessions uh, every week uh, where he answers questions and helps teach uh, new drummers. So that's an avenue he has to fall back on. Does he have some... Um like published works like CDs and that kind of thing that we could purchase to help? I don't think so. He was mainly a session uh, player. Uh, yeah. uh, I, I expect uh, some of the albums from uh, his band Ghost are out there. Mm -hmm. So feel free to have a look at those. Yeah. But uh, I don't think he's got anything fantastically recent. He, he may be able to get in touch and perhaps uh, tell me differently, in which case I'll let you all know. Well, Ian, if you're listening, um, cheers, man. Uh, such a great... Um, interview and allowing yourself to open up like that. And I think that's, it's helped a lot of people listening to the show and will continue to in the future. So thank you. Cheers. Yeah, absolutely. Inspiring. Absolutely. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Inspiring. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Man. Just wow. All right. Well, going to be hard to top that one, Nick, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, you wait till next week's. Oh boy! Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, you got you got, you got have, overweight. Are uh, we changing tack next week? You're suddenly a little more light <laughs> Okay. <worry. laughs> well, I'm looking forward to it. Um, looking at the feedback notebook here, number three, Lance writes in. He says, uh, "This is mainly directed at Captains Dana and Jeff, I guess." I've been listening for around a year now, and I haven't had a chance to catch up on many old shows, so forgive me if you've discussed this before. As someone who isn't in the aviation field but loves to travel, it seems to me like all the pilots will be fighting to fly the big jets on long-haul trips to exotic destinations. It seems like both of you prefer the more local flying, however. Just curious if you could shed some light on the pros and cons of each and why you prefer the local flying. Uh, pre-COVID world. Also, I'm familiar with your schedules during normal ops, but I'm curious if you could compare that to the schedule of a long-haul pilot, typically how much time you get at a de destination and how often they fly trips, etc. I wish the best for both of you as you transition to new planes. Just booked a flight on Acme from Nashville to Minneapolis on a 717 in September. 
to go watch my Titans take on the Vikings. Here's to hoping they have a season and allow fans at the games. A bonus would be uh, one of you flying me there on the 717. Thanks, Lance. Well, Lance, there's a chance <laughs> that I could be flying that uh, flight from Nashville to Minneapolis in September. Don't know yet. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see what the training schedule looks like. But um, I think that Dana and I can and you know, definitely answer your question about long haul versus uh, domestic or short haul flying. In fact, I think uh, everybody here on the panel could probably chip in on this one. Uh, Dana, why don't, why don't you start? All right. Well, uh, thank you very much, Lance, for the question. Um, <clears throat> it really is. It really is just a preference. Um, I'm a bigger guy, as I was alluding to earlier in the show. So what uh, typically will uh, be a problem for me on the 737 would actually be a problem for me on an international airplane. I've actually uh, experienced explored that option. Uh, when I went to Honolulu a little over a year ago, when I was on the 330, I went down and looked at the rest facilities. And quite frankly, uh, probably wouldn't be very comfortable comfortable for me. And one of the other things with long haul is you have to be able to, I think, and, and of course, Rick will chime in on this, but be able to uh, be able to sleep almost on demand or you know, when you take your break, be able to catch a nap. I'm not very good at that. Uh, I tend to, when I'm ready to go to sleep, I go to sleep and, and I like more of a uh, normal type of uh, want to say banker's hours. Not, not going to say it that way, but uh, generally speaking from, you know, five or six in the morning until 10 or 11 at night is when I like to be functioning. Uh, the red eye world for me, and that's what a lot of international does uh, for me would, would not be necessarily the best choice for me because I just know how my body operates. Um, in addition to that, um, I think it, it would play into safety a little bit. Uh, you know, not that I would be unsafe, but I think that, you know, a couple times that I've uh, flown the red eye type of flying, uh, I don't think my level of personal alertness and safety, because I don't particularly like coffee. I don't drink coffee. As a matter of fact, I don't drink caffeine uh, unless it's an emergency. Uh, so it's very effective for me, but I don't uh, consume caffeine. And that's one of the mitigation strategies that the airlines tend to uh, promote uh, to be able to stay alert and, and awake. And that's just not the way I function. So that's really the reason why I choose not to really fly international. However, the, you know, the schedules are uh, a little easier, to be honest with you. Typically or generally, uh, you fly one leg to a destination, spend anywhere from 28 to f uh, 24 to 48 hours at a destination uh, as a, uh, you know, I don't know about the cargo world, but in, in the airline world, that's generally what you do. And then once you uh, are at that destination, you turn around and fly back one leg and you're generally done. Uh, because, you know, you're, you're right at your max duty time, duty day. So they really can't do a whole lot with you. Um, one of the other things is time zone acclimation. So. What happened? What happened? <laughs> somebody, somebody pressed the wrong button. <laughs> oh, not me. Not me. I didn't touch anything. Okay. Uh, time zone acclimation. And that is, uh, you know, it's a perfect example when I went over for the Farnborough, uh, 
uh, show. Uh, my, <laughs> and I'm just, I'm normally a very friendly guy, very, very easygoing, but just changing the time zones, I go from being a you know, very friendly guy to being completely miserable. I just don't handle it well. I just know the way my system works. So a perfect example is when I went over to visit Nick, uh, it took me a couple days to acclimate and uh, it, I just never really got there. So, you know, those are some of the issues with flying long haul. Now, to me, going to the 737 is going to be long haul because flying an airplane for more than about two hours, for me, is long haul. Um, So I'm going to have to get used to maybe doing Atlanta to uh, Seattle and San Francisco, which tend to be in the, you know, five to six hour range, depending on winds. Um, So it's going to be a very, very interesting transition. So that's my take on on some of those questions for you. yeah, that's about it. You guys want to chime in? I've you mind if I go next? No, no, no. Go ahead. I've done I've done long haul and uh short haul style flying in my career. Uh in, in the Air Force, I flew C one forty one Starlifter, flew all over the world and I loved it. I mean places that I'll probably never ever see again in my life. Um Australia, New Zealand, um Indonesia, uh, a lot of a lot of Asia and uh some europe as well and uh i uh, it was it was great but you know i was in my uh, early to mid 20s at that time and time zone changes and flying in the middle of the night and that sort of thing didn't bother me because i was a young man um with uh acme i flew long haul on the l-1011 as a first officer did that for uh, about a year a little bit more um and uh we, at that time, the uh, TriStar was just flying mostly from Atlanta to uh, Honolulu. And I, and I was like 39, 40 years old, and I just remember how just out of sorts I felt on my layovers in, uh, in the Hawaiian Islands. I would just walk around with a kind of a fog. I like no matter how much sleep I could get, I just couldn't shake the, the cobwebs in my head. And I'm thinking, man. Uh, I can't imagine doing this in my 50s because at that time, age 60 retirement was the uh, max retirement age. And I think I can't I can't think of, you know, that this would be a good thing for me to do when I'm like mid 50s and almost 60. So I kind of knew from that point that that was going to be something that I wasn't going to do when I got to be a little bit older. And so for me, um, you know, not having to go through the uh, time zone changes and uh, flying in the, you know, because everything leaving at Acme at that time, and I'm assuming that's probably the same now, was all backside of the clock type of flying. Um, and it just didn't suit me at all. And so I got that out of my system. And from that point on, when I checked out as captain on the 727 until this point, you know, flying the last 18 years on the Mad Dog, um, it's all been short, medium type of flying and it just suits me you know it's nice for me personally uh and physically and mentally to fly uh trips that are relatively short and keep me in the same time zone or maybe one time zone away and i do have friends who have gone the long haul route and absolutely love it i mean it is exciting to go to exotic places around the world and travel and but you know what my attitude is if i'm going to go and do that and i do want to do that and i have done it uh, I want to do it on my own time when I'm not flying a trip and I have more than just 24 or 48 hours off 
in France or Germany or the UK. I want to I want to be there more than just that short period of time, relatively short period of time. So I'd rather do that on my own time. And for my job flying airplanes, I want to be as sharp as I can and I want to do it um, to keep me as healthy as I can uh, for these next several years. So that's my my logic when it comes to uh, flying the uh, the domestic or the the short haul kind of flying for me. Jeff, isn't it fair to say that generally speaking, the long haul guys may work uh, generally just work as I said one leg. You yeah. and I on the short haul, we actually do work harder with more legs generally in one day, mm-hmm. in longer trips per se, um, or more trips per month. So it's not necessarily the easy road to to do what we do, but it's just the type of flying as you said, one to two. <clears throat> time zones and it just makes it a whole lot easier to stay sharp and in and, and focused but for me and, and it just depends on really it depends on the person i know people that are just happy as a clam doing the long haul stuff they can they can sleep easily in the crew rest facilities uh they don't have any issue with the the time zone changes and basically they do these kind of trips like once a week you know they'll do it's a basically it turns out to be a, about a three-day trip with one layover in the middle of it, and it's one leg over and one leg back, and then they're off for about four days or so, and then they're out doing it again. Um, but even though we're working really hard flying multiple legs per day on a trip, um, it, it uh, for me, doesn't feel as, <clears throat> as hard, or I don't think it does to my body uh, what the long haul kind of world would do. So, And again, that's just for me. Now, Rick, on the other hand, he may be the kind of guy that isn't affected at all by long haul stuff or Nick for that matter. But let's hear from Rick next. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the whole, you know, jet lag thing, obviously it's, it's, it's a big consideration, something that you have to, you know, keep in mind, but it's, I mean, having flown long haul for so long, um, on the 747 and the triple seven, uh, to me, it, it all started, you know, dealing with jet lag and the length of the legs and the destinations and being around the world and all that—it all—it all starts with a meant with with the mindset. Um, you know, just not not looking at it from from a hub and spoke type system, like 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 you guys otherwise would. Um, on this, and let me elaborate a little bit on that. On the seven forty seven, um, you are based at one of many cities in the states. But that is just your base on paper. When you begin a trip, uh, I'll say, for example, I'll, I'll just give you a, a regular, a regular um, line for me for you know for for a for a trip, a seventeen day trip. Um, you you leave uh, Huntsville, you fly from Huntsville to London, and then on to Luxembourg, and then Lux and, and Luxembourg, uh, you lay over. You know, you can either lay over in Luxembourg or 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 take a uh, a, a limo down to uh, the Frankfurt area, or hop on a plane, go down to Amsterdam, lay over there, and you're there for you know two three days sometimes, and then from there you go on to uh, you could do either a trip down to uh, the Middle East somewhere, or go all the way around the world to Hong Kong lay over there for a couple of days and then complete the trip up to uh, Anchorage, up to Alaska, and then back down to uh, Cincinnati somewhere or down to Kennedy or LA could be. And then back to, uh, it could be that, that, that you never really go back to, uh, to, to Luxembourg. So for me, it, I, I never really kept that, uh, Oh, it's daytime. It's dinner time, breakfast time, lunchtime back home. Uh, for me, it was always about, and it's always been about 
setting my 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 watch and my mind to whatever local time is at destination. And I find, personally at least, that uh, that 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 really helps me, uh, uh, you know, rest better. Uh, it, it helps me uh, eat. Uh, it helps me exercise. Um, you tend to kind of modify the way you do things. For example, uh, I wouldn't eat, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I would just eat one heavy meal a day. For example, that's one thing that I that I found that worked for me. Um, you don't really, you know, go to bed thinking it during your layover. You don't really go to bed thinking, well, it's nighttime back home. I should go to bed now, because you just can't. You, you, I mean, because you're going to be in that theater that part of the world for so long and you're not going to be coming back you're going to be going keep going around the world so it really doesn't work it's not practical to look at your sleep schedule that way so what i did is and then what i do is it's just if, if you're if you're tired just just go to sleep um i incorporate a lot of exercise a lot of exercise in in my in my uh in my layovers and i find that um that really is what 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 keeps me going um and it really helps me deal with that jet lag. Um, as Dana was saying, uh, these very long, long flights, uh, obviously you fly with uh, what's called a heavy crew. Uh, flights uh, between 8 to 12 hours, you need um, three pilots. And anything over that, you need four pilots. And so uh, you need to be able to um, uh, you know, step away from the controls for a little while and then go to the back and, and, and sleep. And as Dana was saying, uh, it, that can be hard for some people. It's, uh, it's not something that uh, you, know, you can't just you know, flip a switch and go to bed. Thankfully, I, I, I'm one of those. I can do that. I can, I can you know, just go to the back and, 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 and just turn, turn my mind off, kind of, and just, just go to bed. So, you know, Rick, when, when you say heavy crew, you're not talking about me being a heavy guy. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I'm not talking about forward center gravity. <laughs> I'm talking the re reinforced crew, exactly. Um, so, um, also, the rest facilities of the airplane are 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 uh, are a big factor because uh, when you're not sitting in the in the at the at your flight station, uh, you got to be you got to rest somewhere. Now, the 747, which is you know. The two long haul jets I've flown, the triple and the 747, have very, very nice rest facilities. The 747 being the best. It's like an it's like an apartment in the sky. That thing is just beautiful. At the very at the very back of the upper deck, you have two uh, beds, large beds, really comfortable. You make it real dark and cold. And I used to make a little pillow for it there, and you get a little turbulence going, and it's just out like a light. So it's great. I mean, so it, it as as Jeff and Dana were saying, it works for some people. It doesn't work for others. Now, going and and this is again, this is a, this is the long haul flying. Really, is is something I've done only on, on the cargo side of things. Um, I used to fly passengers on the seven sixty seven. Really, the longest flight we did was a uh, a flight from South America to to Madrid, which was about you know ten and a half, eleven hours, which is pretty long haul, you know. But again. It, it's kind of different because at that point in my career, I was based out of a, a out of an airport, and it, it you know the layover was twenty four to forty eight hours, as, as as Captain Jeff was saying, and then you'd come right back. So you never you didn't really have the time to acclimate to your destination, and but you had to stay awake somehow to be 
tired enough to go to bed before it was time to fly back. So you kind of had to, you know, it's, it's, it's a balancing act. Um, now contrasting that with what I'm doing now, doing a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, shorter, you know, type of flying like Captain Jeff and Captain Dana, uh, uh, do it's, it's, you know, it's, it's nice because having flown legs anywhere between 12 to 16 hours and now flying legs, you know, two and a half, three, four, and even five hours, I'm going, wow, this is, this is, this is quite nice. This is, this is really nice. Not having to deal with the jet lag and the, or so much jet lag and, 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 and being cooped up in an airplane for so long, because believe it or not, once you're, you know, you, you take off in a 747, you're dead to the world for 16 hours. So, um, but, uh, you know, just to each his own, I guess you know, there's different ice cream flavors for different people. I like long haul. I always have, but, uh, I'm partial to, uh, to short road as well. So, uh, I don't know. Variety is the spice of life. Um, is, I have to say, indeed. on the uh, TriStar, when I was flying for Acme, um, we because it was a three pilot crew, uh, there was no crew rest facility on that airplane. You were in the seat the entire time, um, so uh, that's okay. a little bit different than today's world where you don't have any three pilot crews anymore. As far as you know, dedicated positions: flight engineer, first officer, captain. Uh, so, you know, I don't know what it's like, actually. I guess the 141 did have a bunk, but I don't recall ever using it. Um, I was hey, pretty Jeff, much awake the whole time. Yes, sir. Th- that L-1011's cockpit was a crew rest facility in itself. Come on. Yeah. But, <laughs> that's, that's like having a small but we were, condo. But we weren't allowed to it's sleep. Like a small palace. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't yeah. just lay back and just sleep. Like I could in the 141 in the Air Force, it was okay for us to sleep. It was not against the rules, but, uh, in, in the part 121 world, if you're flying, you know, an L 10, 11, uh, DC 10 or whatever, you couldn't. That's not so true, Nick. Correct. Well, in my world, we were allowed uh, to have uh, controlled rest recovery, uh, as they called it, uh, which was perfectly normal. And there was a whole written procedure you had to follow if you were going to uh, take a nap in your seat. Uh, and uh, quite honestly, it became uh, a very regular thing, particularly on the return flights from uh, the States uh, overnight, um, you know, um, when you'd only had uh, perhaps limited sleep uh, and you're dragging your body through the, that really uh, bad period of circadian low at sort of body clock 2 a.m., 3 a.m., when you, you were fighting absolutely fighting to stay awake uh it was the only thing you could do uh and you even if you just got 40 minutes uh and that was kind of the expected time that would give you enough sleep without going into really deep sleep to just to refresh the body slightly so that you could get through the next few hours but i uh, i always wanted to do long haul i love the fact that i uh uh, you know, go to almost any of the cities we visited, and I knew what coffee shop I like. I know what shops to go to. I knew what was good to see. I knew that the weather might be better than home, might be worse than home, but it was going to be interesting. Uh, and from that aspect, I loved. I loved the fact that I, generally speaking, did only three or four flights in a month. Uh, which, when you really think about it, you know, that's pretty good going. And they were only four days long, most of them. So, uh, you know, you have plenty of time at home. Uh, the bad thing was, as you get older, your recovery time after one of those flights is longer and longer, so that eventually it began to overlap. And particularly when we were doing a lot of 
um, East Coast uh, United States flights where you can get six or seven of those in if you're really, uh, you know, if the rosterers are feeling very mean. Uh, you never really recover from the previous one before you're on the next one. But I still preferred it. I mean, I did a few uh, short-haul things. We used to have uh, some Athens flights, uh, and every now and again, uh, we would be required to step in and fill in for the A320s so they're on the airline that used to do those. And that would be like three sectors a day. I hated that. <laughs> All that stress of getting the aircraft off the ground. You did three times in a damn day. All that piloting <laughs> stuff. Yeah, all that faffing about with loading and passengers and cleaning and fueling and, and you know, dealing with uh, all the hassle that happens on yeah. the ground. In the air, life is simple. It, but is. it was always that hour of absolute madness trying to turn the airplane uh, and get all the uh, decisions made and get all the weathers and brief and fill in the box. It was absolute panic. I much preferred long haul. It was a gentleman's way of going flying. Yeah. Well, on the, on the 747, we had, we had some places where uh, we had some instances in which we would do uh, uh, two leggers because uh, um, a lot of the places that we'd go to, you couldn't lay over in, uh, you know, Afghanistan, one of them, for example, uh, certain military bases you can't uh, lay over in. And so uh, a lot of these, and, and I'm talking most, I mean, yeah, I don't know. A lot, a lot of these flights were military flights, so oftentimes you begin in uh, either Rammstein or Hahn in Germany, and then go down to uh, I don't know Kandahar, Karachi, or down to uh, Bagram or Camp Bastion, or down to uh, the uh, bases in the Saudi Arabia or Qatar. And uh, you just have to, uh, you know, just have these guys on load and uh, load back up and just get back underway and uh a lot of times uh you know god bless them but a lot of times these guys don't uh don't 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 get you out of there quick enough and so um it's uh it, it drags on and then you have to you, know, you and, and then you, know, you still have another leg to fly yeah and, and everything starts moving to the right and then you start worrying about duty periods and it oh ex exactly right <laughs> exactly right exactly right and 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 duty periods as captain nix has here is uh just the, the amount of time that you're legally uh, uh, allowed to 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 fly to be in surf to fly and obviously the the three pilots it's a shorter duty period than four pilots but regardless whether it's three or four pilots that uh that out that that state of alertness is certainly perishable. And so um, you want to, you know, you want to get going as quickly as possible. Now, another issue with long haul flying is the fact that um, you don't really get to fly. And what I mean, what I mean by that is, is um, a lot of times guys and gals would actually uh, have to go back to the simulator and do, uh, and do bounces, do uh, touch and goes because they would expire on their landings. So you need, a, you need a certain number of landings, uh, Within a certain number of of months, a period of time. Otherwise, you have to uh, you have to go back to the schoolhouse and get that taken care of. And so, uh, in the seven four, I would land maybe maybe once a month, twice if I was lucky. Um, whereas here on the seven sixty seven, um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll do I'll do a landing a day, and I'll give the other one to my fo. Where you know, so you really do get to fly a lot more. So there's again, you know, pros and cons 
but but again, I'm, I I am partial to long haul because I, I I do like that kind of flying. I like the round the world stuff, the, the exotic destinations. You know, I've been been to 123 of 195 countries. is is, is quite interesting. So uh, it's uh, it's nice. I've been to all 50 states. Does that count? <laughs> I have. Yeah, you see, that's sure. what I want to do now. <laughs> hey, I had to race my dad to get to all 50 of those states. So it's an accomplishment. How's the state park thing going, stuff? Not so great. Uh, some of them are opening back up here, so we'll we'll start on that again soon. <coughs> Excuse me. Hopefully. I'm sorry, not state park, national park. National parks. Man, I sat there and listened to you guys through all of that, and perfectly fine. As soon as I go to talk, I start choking on a snack that I ate 45 minutes ago. <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> Um, no, interesting comments. I like hearing all that. And it just makes me, you know, it just wonder if I was in y'all's shoes, you know, with a, a professional pilot uh, career or job, what would I prefer? And, um, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I've certainly done lots of, uh, work in the past where I've had long shifts. Um, you know, you don't get to, uh, well, They've changed those rules now on, you know, talk about duty period hours, uh, similar things apply for physicians in training. But, you know, back in the day, it was 30 hour shifts sometimes. And, you know, there's always usually an opportunity to rest, but not always. So I know that I don't do well if I don't get some sort of opportunity to rest in that period of time. Um, You know, I definitely uh, have a limit on the amount of hours I can go before I need to sleep. But provided that that's accounted for, I am one of those people who can sleep on the drop of a hat time zones don't particularly bother me. Um, and, and even when they do, it's not, not terrible. Um, and I, I really have that wanderlust as well. Like I'd like to see more of the world and get it out there. So I'd probably skew that direction towards the longer haul stuff. But Makes sense. Me. Wise choice. All right. I'm not sure if you can hear that. Uh, <laughs> I can hear that. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like they were just here just a couple of days ago, but uh, those are your landscapers. They're to be trimming clear. me bushes yes. <laughs> outside, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we're just going to have to go with it. Um, we're close to the end of the show, though. I have to say, uh, probably about fifteen, ten, ten to fifteen minutes at the max. So let's quickly jump over to uh Akhmad number eight i said uh, earlier that we would be covering his feedback and so we're going to do that uh hello dear apg ears hoping that all of you are doing great my question is for captain nick and captain jeff because they both flew fighter jets slash trainers in the past i'd like to know what they would have done in the ill-fated flight that claimed the life of a female pilot of a flight demonstration team from the video footage available online it's evident that during a low-level flight pass actually right shortly after takeoff Engine failure occurred and the pilot flying immediately, and I highly commend the pilot flying's reaction time, started a climb in what is believed to be an attempt to gain parachute-friendly altitude using the aircraft's remaining energy. What I'm trying to understand is why the crew ejected so late after losing that much height gained instead of ejecting at the top of that climb, near or at the stalling point of the climb. My assumption is as follows, and I stand to be corrected by Captain Nick, Captain Jeff, well, Captain Nick, Captain Jeff won't correct me because he's nice. He's a nice guy. And any other experienced aviator. That's what you think. <laughs> the pilot flying uh, set the aircraft into a dive to ensure that the aircraft crashes away from the people on the ground. I'm not sure I'd agree with that. Ensuring this desired dive trajectory delayed their ejection from their precious top of climb height, sadly. If the crew had initiated their ejection at the top of climb, 
when the nose of the aircraft wa- went pointing down, there's no telling which direction the aircraft would have dived on its own after the crew ejection. What the pilot flying may have been concerned concerned about. What should I have done? What would I have? No, what I would have done. I'm not a pilot yet is climb until the energy decays while steering to a least populated area with a nose pointed up and eject at the onset of the stall. In this attitude, my ejection trajectory would be more or less horizontal. Wouldn't that help give good clearance from the aircraft as it free, as its free fall started with all that precious altitude gained for chute deployment? The aircraft would free fall down to what I estimated to be the least populated area below. In no way am I criticizing the pilot flying for how the aircraft was steered after the engine failed. My utmost praise goes to the pilot flying's actions. My opinion, as stated above, is merely an expression lessons learned. I'm so saddened by this tragedy that I decided to think this deeply about it. Captains Nick and Jeff, if you were the pilot flying on that flight, what would you have done? I humbly welcome any criticism from fellow APGers on my opinion, as it will enrich my knowledge on the delicacy of aviating. Uh, thank you all for this great podcast. And again, that's from Ahmad in Nigeria. Nick. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And uh, I, I'm going to correct you uh, a little bit, Ahmed. Uh, having spent a lot of my time uh, flying single-engine jet trainers, um, the the whole point of uh, uh, when you get an engine failure in a single-engine aircraft is that you need to have time. And that's uh, what you're going to achieve by trading off uh, your speed for height so you're going to pull for height will be the first thing you do and sadly they were not long after takeoff so they didn't have a lot of energy to gain a lot of height um but that's your first action you you trade your speed and gain height and get the aircraft to its gliding speed uh while you assess the situation and you're going through the immediate actions for whatever engine problem you have now there's no way you're going to just zoom for height and eject because uh, the aircraft, you, you've got to assess the situation. Um, is the engine just uh, uh, completely um, broken? Is it not going to get going again? Can you relight it? Can you save the aircraft? You're going to go through all that assessment uh, and try and relight the engine if it's appropriate. Uh, and then there's also the possibility that you could turn back for the runway you've just taken off from. So if you if you have enough energy, you can uh, turn the aircraft through 180 degrees, do a little less, turn back onto the runway and land back on. Um, there were definite parameters in the aircraft that I flew, the Hawk, and you had to have uh, specific amounts of energy before you were allowed to even attempt that because it's a fairly dangerous uh, maneuver, particularly in a heavy aircraft straight after takeoff. Um, so all that would have been going through the pilot's mind. And, and I'm not going to try and guess what the Board of Inquiry will come up with, but it looked like um, the aircraft at the top of that maneuver, the aircraft stalled and went into an incipient spin. Uh, it certainly dropped wing very quickly. And not long after that, they both ejected. So um, I don't think there was any attempt uh, to point the aircraft. And, and much as I appreciate all the good uh, reports you hear of the bravery of pilots who um, try and steer their aircraft away from populated areas before they crash and then they die because they were trying to not hit a house. Um, if I be brutally honest, uh, that 
is not usually in your mind. If you're that close to the ground and you've got a major problem, you're trying to fix the airplane as quickly as you can to save yourself from crashing. And then when it comes to it, you've got such little time left uh, before you exceed the parameters of your ejector seat, you're just going to jump out. Uh, and the aircraft can do all sorts of things once you've left it. You've changed the center of gravity. It could, it can maneuver in all directions. Um, and there's no way that you'll guarantee it will go where you pointed it anyway. So, um, you know, I, I'm sorry, but all the newspaper articles you see where brave airmen steer airplane to avoid a school or a church or whatever, um, it, it's, I'm afraid it's wishful thinking. Um, why their ejector seats didn't work uh, sufficiently well, I do not know. It may be the capability of the seat. It may be the, been the rate of descent that they had on. It may have been a, a, a malfunction. Uh, we're going to find out eventually. But why they were injured and, of course, that tragic death, I don't know. Um, but uh, that's my thoughts, I'm afraid. Uh, so, yeah, uh, what the what you're suggesting that they did, which was zoom and eject, uh, would, would not have happened, I'm afraid. I agree 100% with everything he said, and I'll just add a couple of things. Uh, having flown for a lot of time, a T-37 trainer, which is very similar in, in size and performance, uh, not quite as, actually the performance is a little bit less than of this uh, Canadian uh, trainer. Um, there is um, a an, an envelope of time and altitude uh, and speed that your ejection seat system is is not going to be effective. Um, so it may have been in a, manu a maneuver, as uh, Nick mentioned, to trade kinetic energy for potential energy to try to get into that envelope. I don't know. I agree with him. I think uh, the wing drop kind of indicates that the thing went into a stall. Um, and the first thing that you would be trying to do, as Nick said, is try to trade that kinetic for potential, and then also see if you can actually get that engine started so you can actually fly the airplane and land it. Um, and it all happens within a split second. And then obviously in this situation, that wasn't going to happen. And they ejected when they could. And the other thing, and I know it's insensitive to say this, but I agree completely with Nick when it comes to when you're in this situation and you hear all these stories about heroes trying to avoid hitting something on the ground. Honestly, uh, the uh, kind of a, a, a thing that we said when I was in the Air Force is uh, in an airplane that has an ejection seat is uh, you get to the point where you need to bail out. You just uh, you you give it to you give it back to the tax. Uh, sorry, give it back to the taxpayers. I know that's insensitive, but basically the bottom line is you're just trying to get out of that airplane alive, and you're doing everything you can do to uh, to do that. And that whole area around which that airport is situated, as far as I know, is is heavily populated. I don't think there's any way they could have gotten it pointed anywhere that didn't have a population center. So um, a lot of things happening right away. And uh, apparently uh, for that seat's performance, because it's not a high-performance airplane, so they don't put high-performance ejection seats in non-high-performance airplanes, it probably wasn't in the envelope. And that's why the, uh, the ejections weren't completely 100% successful. Yep. Well said. So that's the way it wasn't a fighter with a, you know, with a rocket 
um, zero zero seat. Um, so I always thought about right. that when I was and taking even, off. Even that. those have their limitations. You, right. you can't, once an aircraft is descending very fast, you still need height above the ground mm -hmm. uh, to overcome the fact that you've got a high rate of descent when you leave the aircraft. The attitude is not nearly so important as the rate of descent. Uh, an ejector seat deploys so quickly, uh, whether you're upside down, right way up, vertically up, vertically down, it really doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. You're within a heartbeat, you're going to be in your parachute. Uh, so um, it's not so much that as problem. It's your combined velocity uh, towards the ground and whether you have enough time for your parachute to deploy and get that one swing in. Get at least a swing. To, uh, yeah, to do, break, break your rate of ascent, to slow your rate of ascent. That is the important factor. And I was, it was always cognizant of everybody that flew the T-37 is that, you know, shortly after takeoff from the time you basically, you get to a certain speed on the runway actually, uh, till about, I don't remember the exact parameters, but like a hundred feet and a certain speed, there's a, there's a frame of time there that you are completely out of the uh, envelope of a safe ejection. And the only really thing you can do is just try to find a spot on the ground to, to put it down. Um, so um, that's just yeah. the way it the, is. The early jet trainers I was in, they had 90-90 seats. So you yeah. needed 90 knots and you needed to be 90 feet above the ground. So yeah. um, that was the requirement. So I hope that helped, Ahmad. Uh, great questions. Um, and uh, it, it was a sad event. Now, the good thing about this is that the pilot flying uh, is still alive and hopefully he'll continue to improve and he is an eyewitness. He's going to tell us exactly, or he's going to tell the investigators exactly what happened, exactly what he was thinking. And, and that's going to, I think it'll lead to a lot of answers if we have access to them. So, um, before we go, I would like to quickly look at uh, something from a fellow podcaster and somebody I call my podcast guru. He is also a contributor, a big part of the APG community. He sends us feedback all the time. He is also a, um, a humble navigator, um, I believe. I'm not sure of all the airplanes that he flew, but I'm pretty sure that one of them was the F-111. His name is Mike Dell. He lives up in uh, Michigan, up in um, oh, uh, Traverse City, I believe. And uh, the reason why I call him my podcast guru is that uh, it's his job, basically, to help people with uh, podcasting. So he's uh, very knowledgeable with that. The, uh, he also does a, a several different podcasts, one of which is a, the Podcast Help Desk, I believe, is his um, podcasting podcast. And he also does a podcast with uh, another person uh, with whom he works at uh, Blueberry which is a podcasting organization, and they were doing a show. It's called The Podcast Insider, and he sent me an email uh, shortly, or the same day they had just finished uh, doing the show. And he and I believe it's his boss at Blueberry um, were discussing the importance of community. And we all know the importance of community, especially in this time with the pandemic. But even you know, aside from that, one of the things that makes, and I've seen even that expressed today in our own chat room while we're recording this show live, how important it is to have community and what a blessing it is for us here on the APG crew to be backed by this wonderful APG community that we have. And I'll tell you how important it is for people out there with podcasts. And I'm going to play this little excerpt from the show, Podcast Insider, with Mike 
Dell. You know, look what Adam and John have done with uh, No Agenda. You yeah. Know, they call everybody producers and everybody's, you know, they have these unique titles uh, uh, of what their listeners are. I have a, another friend that does a, a show called Airline Pilot Guy, and uh, he has his uh, APG community, and uh, he gets more interaction than any podcast I've ever seen. It's, it's, it's amazing how, you know, if you do build a community around your show, that, uh, you know, you get a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot back from it as well as, you know, providing a lot of what do you call it, value for, yeah. uh, for your audience. And, you know, we'd love to have that. We call you guys insider. That's right. Podcast insiders. I like APG community members better myself, but that fits us better. I think, um, good assessment though, Jeff of part, the community you've built and how valuable well, it is. I, you know, it's, uh, I don't want that. I just want to acknowledge the fact that that uh, and I've said we've said it so many times on this show. It's it's fun doing this show, but and and when it started, it was just a show, and then slowly a community kind of got built around it, and now it's really the community, and it's the five six of us every week our excuse to get together and talk about aviation and and other stuff because. Uh, we're here just to kind of facilitate this amazing community and that's how, and, and it's, it's an important thing. And I just wanted to kind of share that with everyone listening to the show that we, we have really something very special here on this podcast. The, the amount of interaction that we get on this podcast, whether it be other aviation podcasts or and podcasts in general is quite, it's quite something. I'll just say that. Yeah. So. I think it's unique and it, it's kudos to all of you out there who are listeners and who contribute and are here in the chat room and come to meetups and are just enthusiastic about it. We really appreciate it. Yes. So thank you all of you listening for giving all of us here on the crew an excuse to keep coming back every week to try to entertain you and give you some kind of content. I guess infotainment maybe would be the best way to describe what we try to do every week. We try to give you some info. We try to shoot for that 50% level. We don't always get there, but we shoot for it. And uh, But mostly it's like whether we get there or not, it's just being sharing with you and hearing from you and also just trying to be as entertaining as possible. So thank you everyone for that. So with that, I think that uh, if you want to learn more about the show, you can head over to the website, airlinepilotguy.com. And we're also on the social meds. Hey, we are. So if you want to be part of that great community that we just talked about, uh, please don't be shy. Join us there on twitter.com. We're at APG Crew. If you need to send one of us a message individually, uh, you can find that information pinned to the top of the page. Also head over to facebook.com slash airlinepilotguy. Um, lots of folks from the community sharing different news aviation stories or uh, just general thoughts. So we'd love to see you there on the social feeds. And I've been a little bit of a slacker, which we'll get to in a moment. But on the um, Instagram account at APG Crew, I really need to be better about posting some stuff there, too. Well, I've been a huge slacker on Slack, which is uh, the uh, bailiwick of um, Hillel. I think that... Uh, Oh yeah, there we go. I'm turning up the microphone in the uh, in the bathroom there. I think he's just coming out the Hello! Slack! Okay, but I'm dripping wet. Well, he's so excited to uh, tell us all about Slack, apparently. Here we go. 
APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel. Now you could head back to your, your little safe place. I'm not sure how safe that is. I'm sorry, what? I'm not sure how safe that is. <laughs> I think I think he's back there. Let's see. We can hear from him. Whose hair is in my toothbrush, Jeff? My question is, why does he have a toothbrush in my bathroom? Sounds like he's awfully at home. That's here. the big question, I think. Anyway, uh, we have fun. Thank you, Hillel, for, and for scrubbing for... in their privates with it. <laughs> okay. And uh, with that, I think it's now time for us to uh, pull the plug on this week's episode. And uh, thank you all for, as I mentioned before, being part of this great community, uh, for for downloading, for reviewing, for subscribing, even if you don't normally subscribe. Subscribe to the podcast. It helps. Gets the word out there for other people looking for a good aviation podcast to listen to. Uh, YouTube channel, you know, the Airline Pilot Guy, youtube.com slash Airline Pilot Guy. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the little bell, which gives you uh, notifications when we're doing the show live. And if you've never joined us here live uh, on YouTube, you really need to, because this group of people that are here, both in YouTube and actually uh, Facebook Live, are wonderful people, great chat rooms, a lot of great discussion going on. So check it out. All that information is on the website. And until next time, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Keep the blue side up and see you next week. Bye, everybody. Take care of yourself and everyone else. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall oh, I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, how did I I fly over